Welcome back to the HPP podcast. I'm Rich Harris, and I want to thank everyone for joining us this week. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's pod, we offered hot takes on the NBA Summer League, uh, breaking down the best and worst performances by uh, some of the uh, key rookies and key second year and third year guys. You can listen to that episode or any other of our episodes at hoopsprospects.com. Uh, today, I'm joined by the u- usual cast of characters, Drew Barton, Hugh Baxter, Cam Real, Connor Youngberg. How is everyone? Terrific. Great. Connor, you were MIA last week, uh, and there were strange rumors circulating about your whereabouts. Uh, you want to fill us in uh, what you were up to? So I took a, a, tampering. <laughs> tampering? I took a, I took a nice little, little two-week vacation in, uh, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, but now I'm back in unfortunate uh new york but hey okay but i did i see i saw some of those rumors some tampering <laughs> some tampering going on uh, i can't confirm nor deny helping, any tampering accusations but helping chet holmgren grow a beard uh was another one that was <laughs> circulating um so all right so today we're going to uh be a little different than usual uh we've reached the doldrums of the summer and i'd like to point out the the uh our producer originally read wrote this to say the doldrums of summer featuring basically saying there were no sports i could not utter those words with the uh, hungarian grand prix going on today shame 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 on you f1 is still going on and uh full force i love f1 um, wmba is heating up too right um so anyway uh Fear not, we got everything covered here to get out of the basketball doldrums, which always happen around this time. And uh, we have interesting topic to discuss, which is the future of the NBA. The collective bargaining agreement is up for renewal. So major changes to the league are a real possibility, including some rule changes, uh, structural issues with the league, possibility of expansion. Um, and later, we will also be joined by not one, but two special guests today. Um, so stick around for that as well. So we're going to jump right into it. And first topic we're going to talk about is a flat lottery system. And uh, the question we're posing to our panel is, should the uh, NBA move to a flat lottery system, give every team an equal opportunity to land the best uh, talent? The reasoning would be that it would eliminate tanking as a strategy uh, to consolidate talent foster more player trades by equalizing the value of first round picks. So uh, who would like to start us off on the flat lottery proposal? I can, I can start things off since this is one of the ones that I wrote in. Um, Yeah. uh, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, I personally dislike the whole lead up to the lottery of like, I don't know, is anybody going to get upset in their, race to be the worst team in the league and end up with the first pick. Um, So they've kind of beat around the bush and tried to even out the lottery odds Um, in the past couple of years. I believe now the the worst four teams in the league have about the same percent chance. And of course, it's only the teams that don't make the playoffs that get into the lottery. I just always thought it would be interesting if everybody had the same shot. You you know, logged into your TV or your Hulu subscription or whatever, um, watch the lottery and, 
you know, there's a perfectly even chance that the team that just won the championship could get the number one pick as the worst team in the league. Um, I think it would, it would uh, bring up some pretty good theater um, in terms of uh, watching the lottery. And I think it would uh, kind of help out the teams that are in the middle of the pack, which I feel like get punished in the current system. Um, they have a chance of getting a really good player um, and totally changing their chances of, of winning the championship. Um, I think, man, I just think that that even playing field could be really interesting. Drew? So, Cam, I, you know, I was, I was going through this and I was thinking, like, as, as a Warriors fan, as everyone is very well aware right now, a system like this, to me, as things stand, would be like, yeah, throw it in there. Why, why not? Like, I would love to win a championship and walk out with Ben Cheryl, Holmgren. You know, I, it would be fantastic. I was trying to think about it like this way, though. You know, given that there is in the NBA, I feel like there is there's general parity. But I mean, it's very clear that there's like the top teams and the bottom teams. What if we combine this with a system similar to uh, when the league did the expansion drafts where teams could protect certain players and everyone else went into a pool? I mean, this is getting super crazy. I just feel like this would be hard to implement now, given that if the Warriors or the Bucks or the Celtics walk out with the number one overall pick or even a top three or four pick, I just think people would be kind of up in arms because there is already teams that are just kind of stuck in the, in like that mediocrity rut. Like I can't see, um, I, I don't know, like the, even the magic, for example, like let's say we, this was implemented now they don't get Banchero and the magic end up with a 28th pick. That's already a, like next season's a lost season for them. And then if they get stuck with a 29th pick again next, then it's a lost season. So it's like, it, I feel like the, it would, it's really help the haves would kind of hurt the have nots. And then I think the middle teams would just be kind of like, whatever, if we get a good pick, we get a good pick. If not, you know, so be it. But um, I just think there has to be something that would force roster shakeup because if you have these contending teams already that are on the younger side, like the, the Celtics, as an example, and they added Banchero to a core of Tatum and Brown, who are both 25 or younger, they're going to run the league for the next, you know, decade now I, I know contract negotiations would come up like at some point if you got really lucky you having to pay all these guys would become an issue but uh i just feel that we'd have to shake up the actual rosters as they stand maybe a system where like, hey you can protect five guys everybody else goes into like a pool you pull from that and then you do a draft system we're talking about completely altering the landscape of the nba but um i just can't imagine the warriors walking out of panchero and the rest of the league and the rest of the fandoms across the league being like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is cool. This is good for the league. I'd like to follow up on something Drew brought up, too. I don't think the players would be crazy about this because, um, you know, Bonchero is, you know, if he's going to want to make or somebody on the Celtics is going to lose out on big money. You know, you see what I'm saying? I mean, if, if you end up with a, a bunch of, you know, top five, top ten picks end up on a good team, you're not going to be able to afford all those guys eventually, but that's just a, a, another sidekick. Connor? Yeah, Drew mentioned the Celtics, and I just want to remind everyone that in 2020, the Celtics had the 14th pick from Memphis. With flat lottery odds, there's a chance they get the number one pick, and then they have Edwards, Tatum, Brown. Like, that's pretty ridiculous. Um, as a fan of a small market currently tanking Thunder team, um, as much as tanking I know can get annoying – like we had Xavier Simpson, the like the hookshot guy playing 42 minutes a game. Like Jalen Horde became prime Wilt Chamberlain for like a week. And as much as like it can get annoying and rough to watch, especially because I watched all 48 minutes of those games. 
Um, it's kind of one of the only two ways a small market team can build up their roster. Now the Thunder have done it through trades and draft picks, but I don't even know who the biggest Thunder free agent signing would be. Like you look at like even the Jazz. I think we talked about it like a few weeks ago on our show. The biggest signing they've ever had is Al Jefferson. Um, so the draft is kind of the only one of two ways to build up your roster. So I think with flat lottery odds, instead of helping the middle ground, I think it's more helping the really, really good teams. And like, I remember the, the Nuggets a few years ago, they got hit with the, the injury bug and they ended up with Michael Porter Jr. at 14. And that ended up being a snag, but like teams that get hurt, like the Warriors where Curry, Clay was out. Like imagine they just have a rough season injury wise and then they get the number one, number two, number three overall pick on top of that. I mean, they, I guess they did do that with Wiseman. But. I mean, that's just what happened. I mean, think about it. We got Kaminga, yeah. Moody, Wiseman. Now imagine if that happened again after winning the championship and they got the fourth pick again next year. People would be like, yeah. okay, so now you, you you just keep winning. And now that, that's where I was going with it. Yeah, I think for me, the, the probably the best benefit, the, the thing that stands out that really would work for this is for those middle teams who are in that, eight to 12 range and they get to the point two thirds through the season where they have to kind of decide as an organization, are we making a push? Are we trying to make a playing game? Are we trying to get a seven or an eight seed? Or there comes that sort of breaking point for a lot of teams or are we tanking? Are we going down? Are we trying to, you know, get, get some good draft picks coming up? So I think that really benefits them and they can always at that point in the year be like, let's push, let's push the playoffs because it doesn't matter. Our lottery hours are equivalent to everybody else's. Um, but I think the the reason that touches the most on why I don't love this is what Connor was just saying in regards to small market teams. Um, those teams know that they need to build through the draft and they know they're not getting big fish and free agency. And so I think for them sometimes, maybe not the full-blown tanking decision, but the understanding that, okay, let's this is a down year for us, fair enough. We, we know that if we can get a solid pick coming up, then we can turn it up a bit more. I think this really hurts those teams. So, like I said, sort of doubling down on a few things that have already been said, but it's not a bad idea. I think there's really pros and cons to both sides of it. Tim? Yeah, so I was think, kind of like thinking more about maybe some of the, the unintended consequences of this. And I realized that by evening the, the value of picks, like it, it does go up and down. But for teams like... Um, like OKC that have traded away their good players for picks, it actually makes their process better because they get a chance of like you're basically stamping a lottery ticket for the number one with every pick that you're getting from other teams instead of, you know, you're taking a handful of bucks picks that are going to be in the late 30s, you know, so it kind of works both ways in that way. And the more lottery stamps you get, the better chances you're going to get at those top picks. So I think but, in that way, it's kind of cool. People aren't going to be collecting, you know, for under the system, people would never go around doing that collecting of first round picks um, as much. And that's another problem because what do you do about the picks that have already been traded for the future? All of a sudden you, you, they had a, a given value and now you're completely changing the value of them. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you could still, I feel like protections you could still uphold, you know, say, Hey, we're, we're willing to trade away this pick if it falls between this mm-hmm. number. True. True. I mean, true. it's still more or less what you're doing now. True. Um, there's just a performance base on it. I think the, the cool, the thing that I like about it is the bad teams don't have to intentionally suck, you know, like, okay, so you can send their guys out there and, you know, Shea's playing to win. Everybody's playing 
to win because there's no motivation to be bad. Um, that's more the motivation behind it and what I like about it. Um, but I mean, obviously it's a theoretical idea and there's ways that you could balance it. You could definitely make it. I think I would, I would be in favor of maybe expanding, um, further the chances of the number one pick. Um, just because I think, you know, if you are that middle of the pack team, you're still out of playoffs. You still don't have a shot at a ring. Um, you're just as bad in my eyes as the worst team in the league. Um, so I think that would be interesting to see. Okay. Um, my thoughts is uh, I don't like it. Um, I just, it doesn't, uh, you know, you need a system to, you know, the draft in just about any type of league has always been to uh, give the teams that, stink a chance to get better um so yeah um i i you know like if you think about it you're almost in a way eliminating the draft in a sense um and in europe where they have no draft the same teams every year are good um now you wouldn't be totally doing that in this case but some people would say well this is eliminated the draft altogether at that point but in europe you know, Real Madrid is good every year and, you know, Barca is good every year. And uh, there's several Turkish teams, several Greek teams. They're just always at the top of their league and the other teams don't have a chance. So I don't think you, def you definitely don't want to eliminate the draft. Um, but at the same time, I think this would have a similar effect um, where the big teams would always have an advantage because, the smaller teams are never going to be able to uh, automatically benefit from the draft. And so the difference maker is going to be free agency and that's going to be dominated by teams like the Lakers and the Celtics and so forth. So, uh, so let's take a vote who likes it and who does it. We'll go uh, just right down the, the order. We'll start with Cam. Um, I think if it was just non-playoff teams, I would be in favor of it. If it was just non-playoff teams. Yeah. So like if it was teams, if you didn't make the playoff playoffs, you get the same odds at number one and yeah, so uh, on and so forth down yeah. the list. Okay. Uh, that I, I think, <clears throat> yeah. Tanking um, would still be an issue there yeah, because teams that are on the bubble might just say, screw it. Like I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit my top two guys the last yeah. month. Of this. Tanking would still be an issue. You actually might have deeper tanking. You might have yeah. teams that wouldn't, tank under the under the current system the might tank now connor your vote yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna be heavily against this one okay uh drew yeah i'm, I'm gonna be against as much as i'd love to see banchero shooting up for the warriors <laughs> or uh wemba yama join the warriors next year i'm gonna have to say no q i'm also against it but i think this could be a, a solution if tanking gets really bad in the future ah yeah good point all right. So that one is rejected by the committee. So the next topic is what we call the super max rule, which we discussed, uh, I believe, uh, two weeks ago on the show uh, for players like, uh, goodness, uh, Damian Lillard, uh, who was, oh, and uh, Bradley Beal. And basically what we were saying during the show was that basically 
it's really great that those guys were loyal to their team, but they've also just totally eliminated any chance their team has of really making uh, significant strides because they basically are eating up so much of their cap. So what I had suggested at that point was, well, what about if there was some kind of cap rule when you're trying to keep these bird rights players um, that uh, you could go over the cap in, in, in a situation like that. So the super max would uh, wouldn't count as for its full amount against the cap. So where Damian Lillard, I forget what's the number he's making. It's, it's astronomical. 61 per year, I think. Yeah. I, I was yeah. thinking it was 62. Um, so let's say for example, that in, in order for that uh, you know, that you would only take a percentage uh, of that deal and basically apply it to the cap so they could still sign other players. So uh, we'll start with uh, Drew. What, what are your comments here? Yeah, Rich, I am totally on board with kind of where you were, where you were taking this. Um, I think you would just have to view this. You'd apply it similar to bird rights, where if a guy, it only like a loyalty bonus, where if a player's been on your roster for, I would say, maybe four years minimum, so maybe add an extra year onto the bird rights, that would line up with rookie extensions. So, like, if you had a really stud rookie and by the end of his rookie deal, it would line up well with that. Or if you do land a player in a trade and he sticks around and he's been there for a period of time, you can make it – I mean, I don't know what the percent would be, 10%, you know, 8%, whatever it is. It's kind of like free money. So, if he was going to sign a $100 million contract, the team gets like a $10 million kind of – reimbursement on that so nothing crazy so you're not going to get to sign Damian Lillard and then go max out Steph Curry but with 10 million dollars we saw that land PJ Tucker who is a proven contributor is as a plus factor especially in the playoffs when versatility becomes really important so I think there has to be something like that because you know can you spend a lot of money and win if you have bird rights and draft well I think you know the Warriors have proved that you can max Steph you can max Clay you can damn near max Draymond and you know, because you have their bird rights pretty much from the jump, you can be competitive. But for teams that are going to need free agency or that are going to be trying to more reliant on free agency or the draft and adding talent that they're going to have to pay a lot at some point, you know, the bill gets pretty expensive. So I think like reimbursing a team, whatever percent, I think it'd have to be anywhere between probably five to 10% as kind of like a, a free play, you know, free money to kind of get back and use, I think would help leverage the playing field a little bit because you want to see the guys make their money. And I know that the, you know, the, um, the players association wants these guys to sign those max deals and, you know, keep player empowerment to the forefront. But if anyone thinks that, you know, Portland or, you know, the, the wizards, those contracts were a, a, a positive thing for the franchise currently. And for the next four or five years, you're deluding yourself. So this would keep players in the small markets. Cause I'm sure this is where we're, you know, the issue becomes is guys want to make money and be in the big market. So you can keep players, with their money, with their five-year deal, and ensure that they can at least have some competent teammates around them, and it doesn't turn into turn into Dame Lillard and uh, you know whatever's left of Shade and Sharp after two games trying to take on the Warriors or the Celtics. Uh, Cam, so I, I love this proposal, and there's a couple of reasons behind that. I think the first big reason and why I could see something like this actually being enacted: basketball in the NBA is a, a salary cap sport. And ultimately, by a few of these guys making so much, they're taking money away from the mid-level guys, 
like and and really like the rookies like the like i think it even higher it even heightens the bar further for those second contract guys and like just how good they have to be to demonstrate that they're worth that second deal because it it means a lot now for a guy to get a mid-level exception um because it's such a valuable spot on a roster and now there's just so few of them um it, it's kind of become like the only way to make real like big nba money if you aren't a max guy um the other thing and this is just kind of a hypothetical that i've thought about and it hasn't happened yet but i know it's it, it like it's bound to at some point like if you have a team that drafts two super max worthy guys it's going to happen at some point and the way that it's built now you probably can't afford to have those two guys on your roster and maintain them, which is the whole point of the super max is being able to keep guys in the city where they're drafted. Um, I kind of think of it like in action is in terms of the cap, they're looked at as just a regular max guy and they make that, that added benefit on top of the cap um, off the books almost like they're making that money. It's in their contract, but it's not counting towards the cap. And it would let us, it would allow us to see some much better teams because I think even now, like like watching the Bucks, like they have some really good players and they have some really good role players. But it would be cool to see, you know, like I just don't think we're going to see another example of say the Bulls or the Warriors because it's going to be impossible to pay guys that worth the contract that they are actually valued at. Tatum and Jalen Brown down the road. Yeah, totally possible. Totally possible. I mean, you could argue Brown was the better player in the playoffs. Um, oh, it was. It was. Yeah. I mean, statistically, I don't think he qualifies. But say he makes All-NBA next year, he would be eligible for it. And then they're in a situation where can you pay them both that much money? I don't think you can. So you'd have to give up on this young player that you drafted, developed, watched grow, that your fans probably love. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, don't know. I think at some point they have to make a change. Right. Connor? Yeah, I really like the idea of having, like, a loyalty cap space. Um, so every team gets, like, let's say 30, let's, let's say $20 million a year in, like, loyalty cap space. Um, so hypothetically, um, my favorite player is Russell Espra. Um, and he, I've seen the Supermax contract literally destroy his career because it's true like he's probably the worst asset in basketball right now like you would have to attach a first round pick to russell westbrook to get a a bench warmer and that sucks um so if there was a way to say hey russell westbrook's making 47 million dollars this year let's tack 20 million dollars into loyalty cap space and that way whatever team's trading for him is getting 27 million dollars instead of 47 um just a way for like you know, guys like Russ Westbrook who are loyal to the team because obviously he got traded. That's not really like his fault. But, but like in a Dame situation, he's making $60 million. You can say, like, hey, you're going to make you're going to make $20 million under loyalty cap space. So you're making 40 against the cap. That way they have room to breathe. Because um, I think, I think something just has to be done about Supermax contracts because it's just not healthy for the league at all. Like John, not John Wall, maybe John Wall, but. Players like Russ Westbrook, are, their careers are literally getting derailed because of their contract, and that that just sucks to see. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Drew? I love the point that Cam just made 
about the like you draft guys, whether it's in the same draft or like within a year or two of each other, because the super max, I think unintentionally, we just talked about tanking kind of destroys tanking. If you tank well and it works out, the super max is going to end up screwing you four years down the line. I look at like the thunder and, you know, we all love the potential of Chet, you know, Jalen Williams, they're drafting him. I mean, we talked about how his basketball arc took a huge leap forward in a month span. So they drafted him hoping he turns into something great. What if in four years, both those guys are playing at an all, you know, all-star level, who knows, maybe all NBA, you never know. And then they're going to have to look down the barrel and go, crap, we tanked to get these picks to have four picks in the first round. And we got to say bye to one of these guys. So I, I, I love that point Cam made because we think about tanking as you compile picks so you can t- take as many shots at these rookies that one day turn into the next Kawhi or the next Steph or the next Cat or whatever. And then you get screwed because to keep them in your small market, which you force you to tank because you are a small market, you have to say bye to one of them because they want to go make more money. So I think that that point Cam made is super important. To, you can't have it both ways. It would suck to tank for four years. You're not good. You get all these picks. You cash them out on two or three really good prospects. You do a great job and those prospects hit, and then you lose one or two of them because you can't pay them all because Chad Holmgren took the Supermax, and now Jalen Williams is like, well, hey, I'm worth, you know, maybe not the Supermax, but I'm worth $140 million and you can only offer me $60. i am out. Right. We're going to wrap this up. Cam? Uh, yeah. The other thing that with the Supermax that I think has become an issue and I would really love to see addressed in a rule system like this is that these guys will sign a contract that they can only sign because of their loyalty points and then turn around and ask for a trade. The odds that Brad Beal does that are pretty high. Like he's got, he just has to hold out one more year, sign that super max and then ask for a trade to go somewhere else. Like I think, and I think this would be maybe cool universally, but like a year no trade clause. Like you're signing with me. We're going to have the faith in you that we're not going to trade you on this now albatross clause. And you're committing to us as continued loyalty. Yeah. I mean, the whole spirit of this idea was to keep guys where they, where they were. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I agree. That would have to be looked into because th- that would open up a whole can of worms. Yeah. Hugh, we're, I'm going to start the voting with you. Um, uh, you like this idea? I do. I'm all for this idea. Alrighty. Uh Drew? Absolutely. Connor? Love it. Cam? I think it's a unanimous yes on this one. Yeah, it was my bloody idea. I better like it. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like it too. All right. So moving on, expansion. Um, uh, should the league expand? Uh, if we were to add two teams, what cities or franchises are most deserving uh, or show the best business uh, prospects to the league? You know what I'm going to do is uh, we can't talk about each one of these cities. So um, I, I'm going to go through them. Uh, we'll quickly go through them. And um, if you have a definite reason why you like that city or a definite reason why you don't like that city, uh please uh speak up um so uh or i actually i guess maybe would another better way to do it is basically say you know look over this list and is there one particular or a few particular cities that you really like and um and if there's some place you really don't like uh speak up to that as well so i'll just start with connor 
Yeah, so I think we're at a point where the NBA should, like, they kind of have to expand, um, especially with the play-in now. Like, 20 out of the 30 teams have a chance in the playoffs. That's pretty wild. But also, and I've been saying this for so long, the conferences, like, geographically, make no sense at all. Mm. How is Memphis in New Orleans? Like, in like it makes no sense. Well, wait a second. New, New Orleans is moving to the Big Ten soon, so... Um... <laughs> just a joke just a joke we're not talking about we're going to talk about things that don't make sense let's look at college basketball for goodness um, Jesus. uh but yeah so it makes no sense that they're in, in the western conference when they're on the complete east side of the of the country um so i think we need two more west teams and i'm looking at seattle as a thunder fan seattle fans have not shut up about not having a franchise anymore. And I can't even like be mad at them because it's one of like, it's one of the premier basketball cities. That's like taking the Montreal Canadians and moving them to Tallahassee. Like it just doesn't make much sense. Um, so they need a team. And now this one's a little dangerous, but Las Vegas should probably be the second team. It's on that West side. Uh, we just saw the Raiders move there. Little dangerous. James Harden's requesting a trade there immediately. Um <laughs> But I think I think that's what they should do. All right, Q. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think those if if expansion happens, Seattle has to be the first team. They have to be the first city to come back. Uh, kind of nailed it on the head there. They deserve it again. The Supersonics should be back in the NBA. And I do believe there's already been chatter about Vegas being the other team that that they bring on board in a few years. Um, it seems like the football team is, I guess you could say, settled in there well. Some of their players have made some poor decisions, but the team seems to be getting a good following there. Vegas would be interesting too, um, just to have an NBA team actually living there would be really cool. Obviously, there's WNBA team, the Aces. Um, so that could be a good little model that the NBA could look at and see if how successful that's been. Um, but I wouldn't be doing my job here if I didn't mention San Diego needs an NBA team. We need one that's back. True. They did. They stole they stole Buffalo's team. They moved them yeah. to San Diego, and the Clippers weren't heard from for decades after that. Exactly. If the Clippers can move back down, or we can San Diego can get a whole new team. I mean, San Diego is a very laid back vibe, and that I've had this conversation with a lot of people here in basketball circles in San Diego, and that is sort of can be a, a bit of a detriment potentially to what they believe the following and the fan base could be like, but. I've been to a number of Padres games, the the MLB team here in San Diego, the only professional major league professional team here. And their fans are insane. They're crazy. They love going. It's always, it's such a good vibe down there. Um, personally, I live super close to the old, uh, it's called the Pachanga Arena now, which is where the Clippers used to play decades ago. I live, I, so I, I doubt they would want to start playing there, but if they did, it would be really nice for me. I could basically walk the games. <laughs> Um, but no, I just think San Diego has a solid population. Obviously, it's a it's a city and a market that players would want to come to. Um, they where they would Kawhi would be demanding a trade to San Diego immediately as soon as they come on the board. But yeah, that's that's my two cents. Actually, one more thing I want to say is on the Vegas. The noise that we've been hearing about Vegas is that people think LeBron James will be the owner or the president or the GM or all of the above of that Las Vegas team. Mm. Oh, I won't be rooting for them. Um, so, Kim? Yeah, I got to agree. I got to agree with Hugh about San Diego. Um, I think the thing that would make the difference is that the Chargers aren't in town anymore. 
Mm. You know, we're talking about like when they when they did have an NBA team, the Chargers were like, come on, the Chargers were the biggest name in town and always have been, always will be. Um, I was so sad when they decided to make the move to LA. I still don't think it made any sense. And if you ask me, they're kind of the Sonics of the NFL in that way. Like they just belong in San Diego. Maybe they could name it the Chargers. We'll take the Chargers name and branding, just throw it in the league. Um, yeah, it'd be kind of sick. Um, the other, the other city that I think makes a lot of sense. Um, and I threw a couple of, of um, international teams out there. I mean, obviously you have to mention Mexico city. It's one of the biggest cities in North America. Um, maybe not the best market, well, it's- but I think Montreal, you have have to mention as an option they haven't had an nba team before it's a 4.27 million um metro area so it's a it's a really big city on par with seattle um also i think it's cool because in hockey they have a huge rivalry with toronto so i think it'd be kind of cool to incorporate that like two different sides of canada kind of like french canada versus um English-speaking Canada. Um, I think that would be a really cool outcome. Um, as far as Las Vegas, you know, I just can't – I can't get with it. Like, they're, they're already getting a ton of teams. And, like, realistically, it's not because of the city. It's because it's a gambling destination. And to me, it's just, like, it kind of, like, pulls away from, like, the meaning of sports to me, which is, like, oh, this is my city – like the representation side of it, but it's it, like, it would really be a money. Yeah, so many people I, there, so many people cool. there are transplants. Yeah. 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 I mean, and temporary. And temporary. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think those are the teams. The one other team that stood out to me would be Tampa Bay. Um, obviously that's where they moved the Raptors to during the bubble season. Um, just because it's one of the bigger United States cities left on the board, but I, I wouldn't like to see that. Nobody's a, that big of a Tampa Bay fan. Drew? Everyone's pretty much kind of covered the big ones. I mean, if I don't say Seattle, my girlfriend who is from Seattle, who owns a Detlef Shrimp jersey, would probably come onto the podcast and stab me in my sleep. So Seattle deserves a team. So if she's listening, when she listens, Seattle deserves a team. Um, I'm kind of with Cam, like, I think Vegas might be inevitable at this point just because the money, they already have summer league there. There's a WNBA team there. I think Vegas might be inevitable. I think the NBA didn't want to be the first team to do it. So once they saw the big market NFL giant go put a team there, I think they might've viewed that as like, okay, we, we can do this as well. Um, I just think, you know, just to mix it up, I do think any of the international cities we have, um, whether that's North or South of the border, would be really interesting. Any new Canadian team I think would be pretty awesome. Uh, you have the entire country rooting for more or less one team in Toronto. So as the guys said, maybe dividing that fandom up, I think would be really cool. Um, Mexico city market wise. I have no idea what basketball looks like in, you know, the Mexican market. Uh, I, the NBA may have played games there in the past or had exhibitions. I'm not hundred percent sure. So yeah, the NBA might be able to use those numbers to kind of see what it would look like. But I mean, technically if you have a team North of the border, maybe having one South of the border, you know, the NBA's thing basically since that 92 Olympics is, you know, global game, grow the brand. So it would only make sense to maybe put a team internationally down in Mexico. Um, I don't think a team's ever going to end up like on another continent because just the travel would be a pain. But 
you know, the closest thing you can do is maybe have a Central I think American the big, team. I think Big Ten is adding London. Uh, to <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> to play what? Yeah, to play I'm English sure. football or American football? Uh, I, I, who knows? Who knows? But, uh, yeah, the, guy, the guys pretty much covered it. I, I think, you know, Connor's point on that the conferences at this point, it's getting really unwieldy. And it's, in my opinion, a detriment. Like, I don't think it's fair if you're a West Coast team, like if the Blazers are in the playoffs, have to get on a plane and go fly to Memphis or New Orleans, where a lot of the East Coast teams, you know, there's a good chance you only have to fly a couple hours versus, you know, West Coast teams having to fly across the country. So I think from just like an actual basketball standpoint, it makes sense to maybe adjust the map. But I mean, the guys have covered it. I think every city on here, for the most part, has some some merit. But I'm going to say Seattle, so my girlfriend doesn't kill me. And then I'd like to see another team up in Canada just to kind of a grow the game that internationally and B, I think it would give the country a reason to kind of divide the fandom outside of the Raptors. All right. I'm going to throw my two cents in here. Um, you know, for, for you guys, uh, I use Seattle was, uh, I, you know, I remember Jack Sigma playing in the, uh, for the NBA title. Uh, their fans were always loyal. Um, and uh, I, I was shocked when, when they left that city. So they definitely deserve a team. I'd like to see the same uniform, same name, all that good stuff. A um, couple other notes. I, I feel the same way. It feels funny to me uh, that uh, a team would be in Vegas. And the NFL is not necessarily a good model to follow because they would sell their grandmother um, to, uh, you know, they they would sell their grandmother if they could make they it. Sell their grandmother for a concession stand hot dog. At this yeah, exactly, point. exactly. The NFL is, is has the ethics of I don't know what. Um, so uh, in in LA, LA having two football teams is ridiculous. I mean, we saw that in the Super Bowl. The Rams were home at the Super Bowl. You could hear a pin drop at that place, except for at, at halftime. People in LA do not care about sports. They just want to be seen on TV, and that's why all they and 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 the. The, it was the quietest damn Super Bowl I ever heard in my life. It, it was like I was watching, you know, some some Big East clash between, you know, uh, Villanova and Georgetown on football. I mean, not that they ever, but you, you get my point. I, it, it, the Super Bowl was so boring because it was in L.A. Um, but again, the NFL will do anything and to make money. Uh, so this, 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 the second city options I like, and, and I went back to, you know, who's rabid about basketball, uh, in general. And the first thing you think of is Indiana. And, uh, so I, I, I like the Louisville Cincinnati option, which would be close. Indiana obviously already has a team. And the other thing is, you know, the Midwest just loves their basketball. So I like the Kansas city, St. Louis option both of those cities had professional nba teams before so um yeah i i believe yes i believe the nba was in st louis the aba definitely was in st louis so yeah so uh any final thoughts on this yeah i just want to say i know uh um drew mentioned what the market would be like in mexico city if you put jose alvarado on that team they're the most electrifying fans in basketball Lynn Sanity 2.0 baby <laughs> literally he's dropping 40 a night number one selling jersey in the league hands down um I will say one thing about San Diego and Tampa Bay uh California already owns like 17 teams um so I don't it would work though for sure um and Tampa Bay 
if you've been or like seen the crowd at a Tampa Bay Rays game, like you can count the amount of people on your hands. Um, so I don't know how that would work, but they love their, they love their uh, football though. But uh, that's very true. I, I, California and Florida are weird like that, you know. I mean, seriously, they uh, it's uh, in general, but I mean, L.A. and Miami are the worst sports cities in the world because they really are. There's so much more to do in that city, and they could they're just not rabid, you know, as opposed to somebody who's sitting in Kansas City. And there's nothing going on. So, you know, they, they dive into their teams. Hugh, final thoughts? Yeah, just two quick final thoughts. Uh, I just got to the bottom of that list of potential expansion destinations and seeing Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester, New York. As someone who spent two years of college in upstate New York, I can promise you those areas do not need an NBA team. We can just we might as well get that off the Google Doc right now, guys. The, re- um, the reason I yeah, added that, I added great. that to Cam's original list because Buffalo used to have a team and they, they moved to San Diego, became the Clippers, and yeah, and yeah, so forth. I so. think I'm glad you're on the see... list, but I think they're a little further down. They might be a bit down the line, but there is one, one place that isn't on the list that I think should be. And you might laugh at this, but there's a genuine reason why this should be an option, and that is Melbourne, Australia should be an option in the future to get an NBA team. <laughs> and I know you guys would complain about the travel because yes, it will be. How would you like to have a travel. back a back-to-back in LA and Melbourne? <laughs> well, that's only 16 hours flight. It's doable. 16 hours. You fly, you have to play and you play. But oh, in the out, wait. the reason this would work, the reason players would want to play in Melbourne, Australia is because during the NBA season, it is our summer. And so if you played for the Melbourne, Australia, whatever's, every time you return home, you're in the middle of peak Australian summer. Picture that. Every team is going to be wanting to do road trips out there coming out to Australia and play. Right. All righty. Um, the sci-fi show I'm watching right now, Australia doesn't exist because it's underwater. So consider that too. <laughs> uh, all right. So moving on to uh, uh, we have the mid-season tournament. Um, uh, Woj said uh, that there's a renewed traction for a in-season tournament in the NBA. The league and union are discussing a structure that includes a December pool play, pre-Christmas, quarterfinal semis, one million payout per the winning team. Uh, I'm not exactly, maybe Cam or someone could explain exactly how this would work um, because I'm not quite sure. I, I'm having a hard time picturing this. So Cam, you want to enlighten me? So I don't really, I don't totally understand how it would work. The general idea is that they would have a mid-season tournament decided somehow and that the reward would be to pay the players, the winning team, a million dollars each. But but the teams would stay the same, so the Sixers would be the Sixers. Yeah, yeah, but the idea is it's motivating the guys – that aren't making that kind of money to to play ah, and uh, vice versa making the guys that are making those millions um i guess riled up enough to care for a week um i don't know i think it's a, a really stupid idea let's play a tournament for nothing other than to make guys that are making a lot of money more money and, um, this, and this would be like course, a and this would be like a March Madness structure? Supposedly. Um, 
Yeah, I've seen some suggestions that it would be the teams that are in the middle of the pack. Um, kind of like a added playoff motivation. Um, I totally, I really don't understand it. I think it's kind of like the idea behind it is like how popular the league gets around Christmas. Like that's kind of when like the average viewer hops back into regular season play. Um, and I think it's just like the idea is they could expand on that viewership wise, but I don't know. I, I think it's a really silly idea. Drew? Um, make it relevant. Sorry. I mean, at, at this point, is the NBA going to just start giving out awards and rings and incentives for every five minutes you play in a game? Because like, <laughs> I, I think this is so dumb. I'm not a big fan. I'll be blunt. I'm not a big fan of the play-in tournament either. Like when Connor said, I think that like what, 20 teams are playoff teams now? It's getting like ridiculous. And this is just, what is the point of this? I, so I'm going to, I'm going to watch the Utah jazz play. I don't know the New York Knicks and everyone on the court, whoever wins the players get a million dollars when Jalen Brunson just signed a $110 million contract. And that's going to motivate him to, to really, I'm going to play hard basketball. I'm going to compete three months in the season. No, I'm trying to win an NBA championship. So why the hell am I going to go crazy buck wild for a million dollars? Now there was some incentive of the winner gets a guaranteed, you know, playoff spot, or, you know, you get a guaranteed first round, you get an additional draft pick or, or there was a huge money prize, something it alleviates cap space. I don't know, something that actually was going to impact, then I can see teams being all for this. But there's there's no way the good teams are going to care about this. There's like it doesn't do anything for the middle of the pack teams. And so you're gonna have and like the worst teams in the league are like, yeah, we're just trying to like, you know secure our draft spot for next year why are we going to go trot out our guys for additional right exactly you're going to see a lot of people sitting down their players yeah so i mean if they did this and they're like this is for guys like this was like an exhibition thing where like only guys on exhibit tens two ways guys like that played maybe g league players and it brought like the g league to the spotlight like as an nba thing like oh these are like the upcoming prospects maybe but steph curry's not playing this lebron's not playing this yana those guys aren't playing in it and if it's only for the mid-tier teams, so I'm going to watch a bunch of teams that have one good player and a bunch of role players. This isn't going to excite me. I'm just going to turn on NBA Christmas games where the premier matchups. I've been saying if the NBA wants to do a tournament-style thing, they need to do like a one-on-one tournament-style thing based on positions. And like I would love to watch like the top guards, the top wings, and the top bigs play each other, for example. Like That would be entertaining to me. I would, and, it's a, and it's more of a personal bragging rights thing. Like Dame Lillard, Steph Curry, one-on-one. And there's a tournament, whether that's during the all-star game, they want to do it in some Christmas thing that I would tune in and watch because I think players would get up for that. There could be a big money prize. And I think the competitive spirit would be rekindled. That would be more entertaining than watching the Utah Jazz and the New York Knicks play each other for a million dollars when these guys are already making a hundred million dollars. I think this is so stupid. And this is the league just grasping at straws. This is a horrible idea. Hugh, you're not missing boxing day for this tournament, are you? No, there's no way I'd miss boxing day figure rich, but uh, <laughs> I do I do like this idea. I like the idea of a mid-season tournament. I think it needs to be clearly defined really what the incentive is, and it needs to be, I want to, let's keep the million dollars. Everyone here on the winner can make a million dollars each, but let's also add a team incentive so that this is some sort of building block towards the playoffs. Um, I don't know exactly what that looks like yet. I just, a couple jotted down. What if the team, instead of, 
we're winning the game and earning a win. The team that loses in one of these mid-season tournament games actually gets a win taken off their record. So you can effectively go backwards. And at, at this point of the mid-season tournament, it's sort of like you're trying to stay afloat and stay alive. Um, I like this idea a lot. And I, I'm, I'm still obviously needs to be hashed out. And when the play-in came in, I was very skeptical. I didn't like the play-in whatsoever when it first became an idea. And already, are we three seasons of the play-in down now or two? I think two. Two seasons down, I love it. I'm, I'm all for the play-in. I think the play-in has been a nice little addition, a little spark to add to just to mix up the NBA season. And I think this could be the same thing because I think for me, as someone who loves watching NBA, like if it's on TV, I'm watching it. Uh, December, January range is a point in the season where it clearly becomes a bit dull. And the league, you can tell people have sort of got comfortable, players have got comfortable, they sort of know what their team is. And at that point in the season can become a bit boring to watch. Some of the games definitely can be really boring. So I think this could be a really good idea for the league to make that sort of that middle stretch of the season a bit more exciting. I probably wouldn't do it in December. I'd probably do it closer to right before the All-Star break because that seems to be a point in the season when it really does drag on. But I think the only negative against this, as so long as they figure out what the incentive is and there's some team incentive, once they do that, I really think the only negative for this could be a risk of injury and you know player, player, player load management if games are scheduled a lot closer for this tournament. But that right now is the only real negative I can see opposed to people just... Um, long-time viewers of the game wanting to keep it all exactly the same and not never change any to the traditional NBA. Connor? Ever since I got the tweet notification that they were even thinking about doing this, I've been, like, very heavily against it. Um, I hate to keep using Xavier Simpson as an example, right? <laughs> but if, it, if the reward is $1 billion, get ready to watch... Xavier Simpsons of the world play 44 minutes a game because it's a million dollars. Like that's, that's nothing. If you make it um, the playoff, like a, a guaranteed playoff spot, then why play the rest of the season? Now you've got Xavier Simpson playing 44 minutes a game for 30 games. Like I just, I, I've never understood like the incentive to why they do this. Like, would it be entertaining? Maybe. Xavier Simpson did put up some buckets when he when he was playing 44 minutes a game, but it, it's not that entertaining enough to learn, like I'll turn it on, but I'm not gonna like enjoy it. Like I don't like I just think the whole the whole inception of it is just really it's stupid to me. But you're I, more likely to watch it because it's different than if it was just a regular another regular season game in January, right? But I can watch no, the no, Xavier Simpson play in the true, G League. I don't if that was to, true, yeah, right, exactly. If that was true, you'd watch a G League or you'd watch Super League. And but that's I, why I gotta, this needs an incentive to where the stars are going to want to play in it because it's some t- great team benefit moving forward. I got to be honest, when I started today's episode, I didn't think I would hear a Xavier Simpson say <laughs> more than once. Um, I want to see his bank shots. I do want to see that. You seem to shoot these running hooks. We got to wrap this up. Cam, 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 you have any final thoughts on this topic? Uh, no, I was just thinking like to get me to like, as an NBA fan to get me to watch it, it would have to be tied to wins in some way. And from what I've heard, it isn't. And, and theoretically, it would only be eight teams, which I don't understand how they would be decided. What? Um, yeah, that's the whole concept came from the WNBA, 
And the reason it's a big deal in the WNBA is because they don't make enough money to live on. Right. It's like, it's literally like some Hunger Games shit. They're just like, <laughs> hey, go out there, win this tournament, and you can get a $10,000 bonus. It's so messed up. <laughs> I yeah, I just don't see any place for it in the league. Um, the only way I can think that you would get like real teams to participate is if you could win a bonus of wins. Like if that was the prize, okay, cool. We have to, we can take it a little bit easier down the stretch and still have a shot at that number one seed. That's the only thing I can think of. Because otherwise, you're just you're just watching more regular season basketball, except. Right. They get a meaningless trophy at the end of it. Right. Drew? Uh, yeah. Drew? Yeah, I'll, I'll keep it short. At this point, I think this has been floated around. If they want to make the games, the regular season games more meaningful, they might as well just shorten the season at this point. They've talked about it. The reason the NFL is those week-to-week games are so popular is because there's 17 of them. Those games matter. At one loss, you might be out of the playoffs. You lose your week three game, that might bite you in the ass you're out of the playoffs. NBA just shorten the season, and it makes the games matter more. For us as fans of basketball who consume this stuff and watch, especially our favorite teams, it would suck if I, instead of have, getting to watch 82 Warriors games, I got to watch 60 Warriors games. But it made the games matter more. Players would be healthier. I mean, you'd have to figure out how you're going to space out the season, but it would just matter more. Just shorten the that season. Would if you screw up, that would screw up the record book. But uh, sure. it would it would mess stuff up. But at the same time, if that's what you're concerned about, making the games matter more, shorten the season and every win takes on more importance. Connor, final thought. No, I just wanted to agree with you or with Drew because, like, that would help with tanking too because, like, the Thunder gets so much crap for, for tanking, but Shea was playing all those back-to-back games and everything, and then he got plantar fasciitis, like, 50 games in. Um, you know, shortened season helps that, and then we don't get to see the Xavier Simpsons of the world back up these hurt players. Just – we have to go back and count, producer, how many times Xavier Simpson was said on this show. I'm sure oh, we can get a couple you. couple more references. Um, my my thoughts are the, the regular season's too long, uh, so the games already are watered down. The only way I would like this, and this I would like, is if it was part of the playoffs. For the last spot, we have tournaments in both conferences for the last playoff spot. NCAA-like tournament and to get the last playoff spot. Everybody's involved. And, uh, yeah, that would be cool. That would be fun. Um, but anything else, would the, what they're proposing, I think, is a bad idea. So this is what uh, our producer Cam is calling the Elam ending, and it's uh, a little too complicated for my brain, so I'm going to let him introduce this proposal. Um, yeah, so I'll try my best. It is a little bit complicated. Um, but if you've uh, been watching the recent NBA All-Star Games or the TBT tournament, um, you may have seen it in practice. Um, basically, the, the Elam ending was created by, I believe it's Craig Elam, but it was a basically a statistical experiment to eliminate late-game fouling from basketball. Basically, trying to bring back the excitement of the last couple minutes of a game. That was the, the general idea. Basically, in practice, it it looks a little bit like this. Um, At some point in the fourth quarter, the play clock is turned off. And past that point, the teams will have to to reach a target score. Um, Basically, it's decided by adding a number to whatever the team ahead has at that point in the game. 
Um, for example, in the all-star game, they would turn off the, the clock for the fourth quarter, basically, and the game would end whenever the teams got to 24 um, as kind of a Kobe homage, which honestly, 24 is a pretty good number. I could see them continuing that if they, they did implement this. Um, but basically, the, the fun of it is every game ends in a game-winning shot. That's the, the general idea. Um, it also punishes teams for fouling because you're giving away free points um, and like directly affecting your chances at winning the game. Um, there's been a lot of discussion of um, incorporating the Elam ending into G League. Um, and honestly, I, I think that's pretty likely uh, to get implemented there. Um, but yeah, do we like, I think, I guess the general question is, do you like the idea of the Elam ending? Would you be mad if it was implicated, like actually implemented in the NBA? Um, which, you know, this is a game that added the three point line halfway through its existence. So it's not a, the NBA is, and the NBA is not a sport that's opposed completely to this kind of big change. Um, so yeah, well, like, well the ABA the ABA had the three point line way ahead of the NBA, so don't give it the sure. NBA credit for that ingenuity. Um, ABA was were the ones that were thinking way ahead. Um, you had the rainbow ball. That was a missed yeah, opportunity. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Uh, Hugh. Okay, uh, so I actually watched. I've been watching a bit of the Elam endings in the TBT tournament. Um, that's been going on right now. Uh, she had one of my teammates was playing in the TBT tournament. So I saw it happen a few times. And the way they do it is at the last whistle under four minutes to go in the game. So whenever that first break is, they'll, they'll go to a media timeout. And coming out of that media timeout, the target score is set at 10 points above whatever the leading team is. And that other team has to chase it. And so I've seen it a few times in action. It definitely... I think there's pros and cons to it. It adds a bit of excitement and it does take away that element of just hacking when you're down and you're trying to prolong the game. Um, but the game I was actually watching yesterday did still end on free throws. A guy got fouled going up. They were down. They needed two more points to reach their target score. He knocked down both his free throws and won the game. So it still does uh, lend to a bit of that. I wouldn't say it's so drastically different to where we completely remove the the pace of the game and sort of the frustration that people in the NBA world have been having lately is how stop and start the, the clutch moments of games can be. Um, I don't think it completely gets rid of that. So I don't know if it's good enough in that sense to make the last three minutes of a game incredibly free flowing and exciting to watch. Um, and so I think just overall, this is probably too significant of a change to what basketball is and what basketball always has been as that quarter sport, as a time sport. I think this is just too great of a change away from tradition for it to be implemented. However, I do think, like you said, this is a still a good option to spice up all-star games, potentially sometimes in the G League. And hey, if eventually this mid-season tournament goes through, how about we just resign the Elam ending to the mid-season tournament? Make that a little bit interesting, change that up a little bit. I think there's, I think there's parts of it where it will work, but I don't think for the whole NBA, I don't see this getting put in in the future. And I probably wouldn't be for it if it was proposed. In the push to see more Xavier Simpson, somehow Hugh somehow weaved this idea into the midseason tournament. Basically, you know how in Congress where they tag something completely unrelated into a bill so they could kind of sneak it in? That's what Hugh just tried. <laughs> <Drew? be> good. 
Xavier um, Simpson pork. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my god. We're gonna win the record for the most obscure player to be brought up in a basketball podcast ever, consistently. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you in the general sense of I think this is too big of a change, so I'm not really for it. Um, I think it fits well in an all-star setting. Um, it kind of brings in the element of like street ball, where it's like, hey, we're playing to 21, and there's you know culturally that has significance to basketball, but the NBA is a time sport that's part of the game. And and taking it a step further, I think that while it's not the sexiest thing to watch hack a shack and free throw shooting that is strategy to the game like that requires coaching and roster management and putting the right players in the right spot and it, it you take that out of the game it just turns into hey who scores 24 points who can score you know to this number quicker you're removing some of that strategy and some of that element i mean some of the great aspects of certain players a la like a steph curry or kevin Rand, is their free throw shooting that's what makes them valuable as you know at the end of the game I want the ball in his hand because he's going to go drill 92% of his free throws. And so, you know, by removing that, I'm not saying, you know, he was right. Free throws won't become completely relevant, but that's part of the game. Like, do you, you want Rudy Gobert out on the court or is he getting schemed out of games because he can't shoot free throws? And then that takes it to roster construction. You have to sit down with these guys and go, hey, Rudy, you're not a max player because I can't use you in the last three minutes of a game. You are a liability. You can be schemed out of a game. And so this is too fundamental of a change for me. The only way I would be cool with this maybe is if they use this as the way to solve overtime games. I can maybe be interested in that. Both teams, it's a zero, it's basically a zero-zero game. And we're playing first to 21. That maybe I'd be interested in. I could be down with that. Um, because overtime games are such a short period of time, anyways, that you know, the first team to go on a 5-0 run in an overtime game, you know, generally is probably going to win. So this could, I think, even that up. But in a regular basketball setting, in a playoff setting especially, you know, it is a skill to shoot free throws. It is a skill to know when to foul. It is a skill to be able to coach and scheme up and put the right players in the right position and have to make those adjustments. So taking that out of the game, I'm not really down with that. Connor? Yeah, I just, like, like one of the, the things about basketball that like really attracted me to the sport um, is buzzer beaters. That's like, I go, I get home from school. I Google like Russell Westbrook buzzer beater. And then I just watch all those videos. So to have that element of the game, like taken away, like ensure they'll have the, like the game winners to the number, you know, the 24th point or whatever, but it's just not the same. And also if you watch the past two all-star games, they're so entertaining, but it's also very heavy isolation ball, which for 82 games of a, of a year, I wouldn't really want to watch. Um, then on another thing is like, um, how many points did Clay Thompson drop in that one quarter? Was there, 37. Did he drop 37 points in a quarter? Think about if Clay Thompson was heating up on pace for 37 points in the fourth quarter. But there's like a, a, a limit to that. Right, right. Like a player can't go off and drop 50. He could be on pace for it. He probably could have done it um, with a regular fourth quarter, but he gets capped off. Um, so I think it's a good concept. I think it would work for it, – it'll work for the All-Star game, and I hope that's a permanent change. Um, even like the um, – I don't, I don't remember what it's called now, the rookie-sophomore game. Um, I forget what that's called now, but it worked for that. Um, and like if the midseason tournament gets there, cool. But for 82 games, I, I don't, I, I'm not a fan. Cam, 
Um, yeah, I actually like thinking about it. I really like the idea of it being implemented for overtime. I think there's like an intensity level to the elam ending that's really interesting. But on the flip side, the one problem I have with it is like, you know, like let's be honest, the NBA has kind of a checkered history with game fixing. And I think that's become pretty well known at this point. Um, the Elam ending makes it pretty damn easy to fix games. Because, you know, that foul means more in the, in, in the Elam ending than it does maybe in real life where you still got some time on the clock and you got a chance to even it out. I just think, like, especially since we're talking about adding a Las Vegas team, you know, maybe something to keep in the back of your head. Not only that, it messes uh, up over-unders. Yeah, it totally does. No, seriously. I'm serious. Yeah, it totally does. Uh, um, he, oh, yeah. you, want, you done, Kim? Uh, yeah, the one, the one thing I think, I think it's going to become more prevalent in basketball. I think especially AAU is going to start, you're going to start seeing this used. So guys are going to learn how to play in Elam ending, um, mostly because it's so, like, it, it works with time. Um you have so many, like if you're playing AAU or you've been in tournaments, they're always running late or they're speeding things up and like avoiding overtime so that they don't have to be there all day. Um, but I, I think you could see it in more like the the sort of amateur side of basketball, but I don't think it belongs in the NBA. Final thought, Hugh? I think they should run it as a simulation in our favorite league, the Overtime Elite League, <laughs> and see if they're all ripping each other's head off in the end. And then the NBA will know. Um, but I do want to say gen- genuinely one more thing for that I have seen with the Elam ending is that when a team say the target score is 82 and the team that's leading or either team has 79 points, there are three away. It immediately becomes in that possession, we're hunting for a three. And it kind of, which can be fun in a sense on the court when you know a team needs a three. And so like all of a sudden everyone's pressed up uh, guarding the three point line, switching everything. But I just think that also takes away a bit of the strategy and the purity of basketball in the sense that now we're just going to see teams launching and we might just get some seven footers being like, oh, we're three points away from a win. And we see someone taking a bad shot, a bad three. And it's just not, maybe not the cleanest ending of a basketball game, but definitely could add some drama. Right. Yeah. Right. Trey Young would love the Elam ending. <laughs> he just pulled, he pulled, as soon as he gets the inbound, the opposite <laughs> free throw line just launch. <laughs> <laughs> So um, my thoughts were very much in line with what Drew said. Uh, and and I, my biggest concern is that there's not one of us here uh, and there's probably not one basketball fan in his entire or her entire life that hasn't gone down to the local playground by themselves and they're going five, four, three, two, and making believe they're taking the final shot. And this would... Future kids would never would never know what that is. Anyway, I'm 25 years old and I still do that. Right there, you go. So it's like shot goes up, five <laughs> seconds are back on the clock miraculously. Xavier Simpson doesn't. <laughs> he somehow turned back time. He missed the game winning shot, and there's still three seconds left. He was fouled. Xavier Simpson's got like the time stone. He's just keep post shot, post shot. <laughs> Oh, all right. So uh, let's take, let's see a show of hands. Uh, anyone in favor of the Elub ending for the ending fourth quarter ending of NBA games? No one. All right. I, I too wouldn't mind seeing it for overtime. Um, all right. So we, we're not going to vote on these uh, next three rules. Uh, they were things I threw in. Um, 
But I just want to, you know, get a sense of what you guys think. You can just uh, basically, if you like them or don't like them, you can um, go into them. The first one is the eight second rule and the five second rule, which I think are totally useless with the shot clock. You know, why, why bother to have them? And, and um, it's just to me, it's just unnecessary. Uh, anybody have any other thoughts? Just get rid of them. All yeah. right. They just I, don't make sense. All right. I, I don't remember the last time I saw them get called. Like, yeah, really they're, they're oh, yeah. You get, you see them once in a while get called. Yeah. Eight, they they exist, seconds. but like, especially eight seconds. But, uh, yeah. All right. I'm going to skip over the middle one and go down to the bottom one. And this one is the FIBA rule for offensive interference. Basically, in international basketball, once the ball hits the rim, you can actually, anybody can, can touch it. So a defender can swap it, swipe it away, or an offensive guy can just, you know, grab a hold of it and flush it. Um, the uh, what right now in the NBA, if it's quote unquote in the cylinder, then you can't do that. And I hate that rule. It's a judgment call. You know, why have it? I hate judgment calls. I'll give you an example in the NFL. The NFL used to have one of the most stupid rules of all time. And it was the one foot rule on a reception. And basically, if you got one foot down and they perceived that if you were the defender pushes you out, but you only got one foot down. So if they perceived the defender, if he hadn't pushed you out, you would have gotten both feet down. They gave you the catch. And you're like, what? This rule was in the NFL for years. So it's like, why isn't pushing the guy out of bounds a good play? So, yeah. So th that's what this kind of this offensive interference thing kind of reminds me of. Yeah. And um, so anybody have a problem with the FIBA rule here? Cam? Um, I don't have a problem with it. I think the, the kind of the I think maybe the more entertaining side of me or like Okay, sorry. I love shot blocking. It's one of my favorite things about basketball. And growing up as a tall kid, it was my favorite thing about basketball. There's just something so disrespectful about it. It just <laughs> makes me feel like a badass. Um, and you know what? I, like, I'm all for it. It just, it adds that extra dimension and gives a little bit of power back to having a true shot blocker on the court. Like, oh, man. You know what? Maybe Rudy Gobert would be the real defensive player of the year if they had this rule. Now keep in mind. the yes. <laughs> I just, I just want to be clear. We're not talking about eliminating goaltending. What we're saying is, right now in the NBA, once the ball touches the rim, it's still not free to touch until it clears the invisible cylinder. Um, so what we're saying in FIBA, once the ball touches the rim, it's, it's anybody's ball. You can do anything you want with it. So, uh, yeah. Hugh. Yeah. So I, I actually played this rule a lot growing up, played a lot of FIBA basketball in Australia growing up. And so this was a rule that was allowed. And to be honest, I wasn't, I didn't like, you didn't see it happen a lot. The time, the oftentimes you would see it the most was pretty simply just when a ball was sort of really hanging on the rim and wanted to decide whether it wanted to go in or not. And then if someone was in the perfect position, they would sort of jump up and just tap it off and get, get the defensive rebound. That was the only time that we would really see it used. I think this would not work in the NBA though, because I think the NBA has such good athletes to where this could become too overpowering offensively and you could park a big next to the ring. And anytime the ball, someone shoots a jumper or a three, they're jumping up and they're, as the ball is 
potentially hitting the rim and bouncing up, they're ready to catch it and slam it. I think the NBA has athletes good enough that could make this rule too overpowering both offensively and defensively. I think in FIBA, because the athletes aren't quite on that NBA level, that's how you can get away with it. Well, we don't see that in the Olympics. True, but that's because the in the guys in the Olympics, they completely forget it's even a rule. The NBA guys? <laughs> they, well, I'm they, saying the NBA yeah, guys aren't used it's to not, it. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's new the to them. NBA. Yeah, it's not in the NBA psyche, yeah. and it's just not a, a habit of theirs. But I think if this truly was a habit and coaches could build it into their offense, it could hurt the purity of the game again. Okay. So now this is another FIBA rule. Um, the NBA is the only league in the world, to my knowledge, that uses a three-second defensive rule. And, and, and you, th- you know, the NBA has done everything it can to legislate the big out of the game because of people like Will Chamberlain and Shaquille O'Neal. And so they have the three-second defensive rule. They don't really allow you to play pure zone. Um, so, you know, we've often, you know, it's been talked about on this show. Maybe we need to get the big back in the game. Uh, oh, the, the NBA also changed the size of the lane, uh, which is bigger than any other lane in, in basketball. Um, so do we want to see a three-second rule go away and, and, and be able to play pure zone? I, I personally uh, would like this. Yeah, I would, I would love to see it. I mean, you already see teams kind of experimenting with playing more zone. Um, the Raptors definitely come to mind. The other reason I would love to see it is because these guys are supposed to be the best scorers in the league, especially one-on-one. And I think it like the three-second rule is kind of like a like a handicap for great scorers. Like being able to not have to deal with zone is somehow like this freeing thing to guys. You just know you're going in there and playing against man. Um, but I, like when zone pops up in the NBA, I find it hilarious that guys don't remember how to break a two, three zone somehow. It's like, did you guys play youth basketball? <laughs> like it's, it's silly. Like, I don't know. I think that that portion of the game, I would love to see come back and you kind of need that boost of defense. I think it's kind of missing in today's league. Okay. I, yeah, I, I'm a basketball purist. I'd like to see it in the NBA. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll separate the men from the boys. Uh, Connor, what do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Cam earlier mentioned youth basketball and as a, a big kid myself, there was nothing better than running a two, one, two, just standing in the middle and just literally just standing in the middle, just waiting for someone to test you. It's like the best feeling in the world, especially when that one tiny kid does like that Xavier Simpson kid. And you just, you just swat him. Like it's the greatest feeling in the world. And you just, it doesn't exist anymore. And it sucks. And it sucks. Like I, I'd love for bigs to be able, like I'd love for Rudy Gobert to just stand right in front of the restricted zone and just say like, try it. Like just try it and just yeah. see what happens. Yeah. And I think that'd be awesome. Now, and the also only, like. The only thing I'm right. concerned about, no, no, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. But I, the only thing I thought of that might be a downside to this is, you know, we're also, we've talked a number of times about maybe there's too many threes in the game. I wonder if this would promote more three point shooting. I was going to say, this would dare people to shoot a lot more in some in some instances, and against certain teams, that could be a death nail. Like if you're gonna put out a big and just park him in the middle, like we saw Rudy Gobert get schemed out of that Mavs series pretty quickly. So imagine him doing that against like an elite three point shooting team that has three or four legitimate snipers. It would still it might turn a few games on its head, but that's true. But it's also like they don't have to do it. 
Um, at the end of the day, I think just taking that rule away, it either does nothing or it adds more strategy. Um, like I so said, I love seeing NBA players clueless when they, they go against his own. It's like clearly you didn't play Syracuse in college because you have no idea what you're doing right now. And I don't know. I just think it adds a bunch of strategy on both sides of the, the game. So I'd love to see that uh, that rule taken away. You? Yeah, I'll be quick. But I think the point of the three-second rule in the first place is to open up the lane and allow for poster dunks. And that this is the NBA we're talking about with the best players in the world. And I, as a viewer, want to see as many poster or huge slams as possible in every game. And so I'm all for keeping the three-second defensive rule to open the lane up so that people can get to the rim, so that people can score one-on-one, attack one-on-one. And if you can beat someone one-on-one, cool. I don't, there's no help coming. I've proven that I'm a better scorer and then you can guard me. And so let me get to the rim and let me dunk on you. Um, I'm so disappointed. Is, I thought for sure you'd be a basketball purist. I'm cool. The, <laughs> the purists can watch it in college. We can all watch as many two, three zones as we want in college. I'll get my zone fix watching people <laughs> stand around and struggle against two, three zones in college. Don't worry. But if we bring that into the NBA, the league immediately loses Xavier Simpson's running skyhook. And so I just don't think we can bring it. I don't think we can change this rule. I mean, I mean, that's a valid point by you, though. Like, we are dealing with, like, it's a different level of athlete, and that's where it kind of becomes difficult to regulate. It's, it's like we talked about these limitations. It's because Shaquille O'Neal is a one-of-one human being of, like, in the history of the world. And so we're collecting all these guys and putting them out there. And so it's there is, like, a level of, like, a zone might be almost overpowered because can you imagine like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George in a zone of Tyler just flying around the perimeter? Like nobody would be able to do anything if you had those two guys spearheading like a two, three, or if you had Rudy Gobert literally just standing at the rim like this, that's with this, however big is, of course, no one's going to score. Like <laughs> I, I agree with the point he's making at this level, it would be really hard because with their wingspans and jumping ability and lateral quickness, I mean, we saw what happened when Steph Curry was being boxed and won when everyone went down in that Raptors series. Like, it it almost becomes to the point where it's like, well, yeah, if I have Siakam and, and Kawhi sprinting at me, it doesn't matter how good I am, of course I'm going to get overwhelmed and it's going to swing to the defense's favor. So, I don't know. I mean, if you want to implement his own, sure, but I do think the three-second rule kind of has its place. Well, you can't. can't. You can't. You can't have – I mean, yeah. They go together. I, I, yeah. They go together. Yeah. Um. Final thought, Cam? Oh, Hugh, Hugh to uh, Cam, go first. Um, just real quick, like out of curiosity, when do you guys think they implemented the defensive three seconds rule? I'm just curious where, like, what kind of basketball style are we thinking about here? Anybody? When did they do it? Yeah. I would say Wilt Chamberlain, somewhere in there, like 70s. The, the defensive three second rule? was implemented in 2001. Okay, so it was a Shaquille oh, O'Neal. It was a Shaquille It's a Shaq O'Neal. rule. Right. It's literally a Shaq rule, which is interesting. Yeah. I just I I hate also, when people talk about that though. Like yeah, like judging the game off one player is Yeah, but I think I think realistically like that rule came from probably the worst offensive style era in basketball. True. And there's like, oh, screw it like these guys are just hitting each other in the paint and nobody can score over it. Like we don't have Michael Jordan in the league anymore. Nobody's just like dunking through a tackle. Um, I think that's kind of where it came from, but like you have the athletes we've like, we've seen athletes play above that and play through that. Like I just don't think it's, 
it's not a part of any other, like you said, Rich, it's not part of any other form of basketball. I don't get why they enacted it other than, than they were just trying to speed up the game. Right. And it's not like, it's not like teams like Syracuse just go out and dominate in college basketball. They don't, you know? Um, so yeah. Uh, I, I mean, most people will tell you zone is easier to score against than man to man. Uh, the only problem I have with it is, is, you know, it lends itself for you to run the same types of offensive plays over and over and over again, you know, get the guy, you know, the ball in the set, you know, at, you know, at the foul line. And if you got a good guy who can hit a mid range jumper or, you know, beat their center off the dribble, then, you know, then you can't stop them. And then if they collapse and you, then you take the three, but it's the same type of approach. And that's why I'm not particularly keen on watching Sarah play because teams you know do know how to attack it and, and it gets boring but the nba would only use it on occasion they wouldn't use it like jim Beheim. um so yeah uh hugh final thought on this topic a quick story as when i was at colgate we played against syracuse every year and so those the two years i was there we did play against syracuse we spent the whole week in training leading up shooting threes in practice we would literally work on getting a foul line catch to our big and just shoot as many threes as possible. So I see this. I mean, obviously, no one might be on Syracuse's level in the league, but I just think it will promote further threes. And just the last thing I want to say, it we have it can't go without noting that zones still exist in the NBA. In the past couple of seasons, we've seen a significant increase in the use of zones, and it's lending to coaching creativity to where coaches have to build a zone that works within this rule and where they can't have someone camping in the paint. And I think that's been great. I've really enjoyed watching what some of these coaches are coming up with to mix up their defensive scheme. Like the, Nick Nurse is great at it, and now I think a lot of other teams are following suit. Joining us now is Noah Levick, who covers the Philadelphia 76ers for NBC Sports Philadelphia. Noah, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing well. Yeah, doing well. Thanks so much uh, for having me on, guys. All righty. Are you in Philly right now? I'm in Havertown, Delaware County. Okay. All right. I lived in uh, Wilmington, Delaware for about 10 years. So, oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the home of the Sixers G League affiliate. That is uh, correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess the first question I want to ask you is uh, talking about this tampering stuff that just recently emerged. You know, if I understand this correctly, the Sixers are being accused of tampering with their own player, that being James Harden. Um, and, you know, it's just from my sense from my perspective which isn't totally unbiased because i'm a sixers fan um should it really be against the rules to ask a guy if he's willing to take a pay cut so you can sign other guys that that seems almost um i don't know kind of essential to how a team has to operate i think so i think where you might be getting into illegal territory is if in addition to the pay cut um you have an unofficial agreement to compensate James Harden down the line. Uh, that seems to be the rumblings of, you know, what the Sixers may have done here. Um, actually, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Derek Bonner. Uh, he uh, used to cover the Sixers for the Athletic, now has his own um, substack. He had a, I think, useful example of Joe Smith back in the day. Yeah. Uh, where there were obviously very harsh penalties for very blatant examples of this particular issue where uh, he was taking deals below his market value and under the table had an agreement to you know, be compensated uh, down the line. So 
I think that's the gist of, of what the Sixers, you know, may have done wrong with Harden, but I do personally find it really hard to believe that one, they would have like officially agreed to uh, such a, such a thing. And then two, that they would have been sloppy enough to leave evidence of it. And then I think the second category is what we're all familiar with when uh, stuff's happen. Stuff is happening before 6 p.m. You know, it's leaked out to reporters at you know, 6.02 p.m. Uh, and there are recent examples of teams being penalized second round picks for that. Uh, and perhaps, you know, that precedent uh, is what happens here with the Sixers. But uh, the Harden situation is, is a little bit unique or just something, you know, I think it's difficult to prove in part because it's so egregiously wrong to do. And teams know that if they, you know, do what happened with Joe Smith back in the day, um, the league is not going to look kindly upon that. So personal opinion, I'd be really surprised if the Sixers are found guilty of that particular offense uh, in this situation. Yeah. And by the way, when you say back in the day, when you're talking to Joe Smith, we're talking like 20 years ago. Um, so is it to your, to your knowledge, is it, if let's just, let's just leave PJ Tucker and all those, everything else out of it. Is it okay to say, Hey, James, are you willing to agree to this amount of money so that we can sign some other players? Is that illegal? No, that that's perfectly fine. And, as Harden himself explained it to uh, Yahoo's Chris Haynes, it was a conversation with Daryl Morey about you know, what would allow the Sixers to upgrade the roster around him. So I think if you're the MBPA, of course, you want every player to make the most that they possibly can. But I, I don't think there is anything legally wrong with James Harden taking a pay cut. And it's it's not unprecedented it's unreasonable but given at the time he really wasn't a Sixers player because he was he had the option he, he had the player option so he wasn't technically a Sixer at that time is that what I mean are you are you allowed to talk to somebody even though they were on your roster and they can still be on your roster is that part perhaps part of the problem that technically James Harden wasn't a Sixer I would be surprised if that is particularly seen as wrongdoing by the league. Uh, and I think also it is important context here that yes, James Harden, you know, laudably took a significant pay cut, but his quote unquote market value was not his player option of $47 million. No. Right. So it's not like, you know, he's Kevin Durant, for instance, doing this massive favor for his team as one of the two or three best players in the league. You know, he did something that many superstars wouldn't have. And indeed, I think was unselfish in prioritizing the Sixers, being able to construct a better bench this season. But uh, the, the pay cut, it's not a misnomer, but like there's important context to consider here. Um, I think with that particular element as well. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, we'll move on from this and I'm going to pass it over to Drew. Right on Noah. First man, we appreciate you being here chatting with us. Like Rich is a big 76ers fan. So we always like to poke and prod uh, whenever the team doesn't come through for him, but uh, sticking on to the uh, James Harden topic, one of our co-hosts, uh, Hugh Baxter was actually in Vegas for summer league and happened to run into Harden while he was there. 
And he came back and reported to us that he looked really good. He looked in shape. Um, you know, James Harden, people always, again, kind of poke fun and joke about his weight and his, his body shape and whatnot. But he came back, so he looked ready to go. And given the fact that he did just take this pay cut, I mean, do you feel that he is all in and that Harden's kind of maybe turned over that new leaf and really shifted his focus to, to bringing home a championship? If I could interject, uh, actually, Hugh ran into um, Harden in L.A. working out with Kevin oh, Durant. LA, L.A., that's right. right. Oh, yeah, L.A. Yeah, no, I think it just James Harden is aware of legacy and like, yes, he, you know, right now is probably one of the best in the league ever to um, not win an NBA title. And he hasn't even played in a final since he was a six man uh, with a, a much shorter beard. So I think, yeah, that is, that is the utmost priority for James Harden at this stage, turning 33 early this season. Uh, I was able to speak with Sam Cassell, uh, who's been working a lot with Harden in Los Angeles, as well as uh, Spencer Rivers, who's um, a Sixers skill development coach and also one of one of Doc Rivers' kids. Uh, and it was interesting to hear that these joint workouts he's been doing some with Kyrie's Maxi have given him a little jolt and a little energy. And I think um, Maxi has this contagious enthusiasm and positivity. And Spencer Rivers said, like, he can see that Harden loves that. And um, there's a bit of a spark, I think, just just being around this 21-year-old kid who loves the game so much. Uh, and then just the on-the-court stuff, I think, is valuable. The, those two working together. Uh, and I think the Sixers really will plan to play that duo as much as possible. Um, and understandably are very high on the Harden maxi potential. So yeah, Harden, I think is in, invested and I think he's excited too to not be worried about the health of his hamstring and actually just be able to play pickup basketball and to get his work in and to fine tune his game. Uh, so I, I think those are all valid sources of optimism, but you know, there are factors here outside of his, his control. He needs luck with the injuries and the durability and age not hitting him especially hard, but yeah, by all accounts and you know, by the people I've spoken with, um, his attitude is, is really positive about this offseason, and he's, he's been putting the work in uh, to return a better player. Good, good. Um, you know, before Summer League, uh, you know, I looked at the potential roster that the Sixers put out there, and uh, including, you know, Springer, who's still young, Bassey, who's still young, uh, Champagny, who I was pretty high on, um, you know, uh, going into the draft, I, I was actually surprised he wasn't selected in the second round. Um, but when it was all said and done, uh, about the only players that I was pleased with from summer league was Paul Reed and Isaiah Joe. Um, I, and I also thought that Michael Foster Jr. And Amino Muhammad showed enough to earn G league contracts. I both think they have pretty good upside. Um, so what was your take from it? Uh, summer league for the Sixers. I think I'm on the same page. Uh, I, I was pleased to hear you name Michael Foster Jr. I was impressed by him. I got a, got a chance to watch him just once at the, Delaware facility when Ignite uh, visited the Bluecoats. And I think like many people, I, I saw a, a tweener, you know, it's someone who could score and rebound productively in the G League, but was skeptical of how that might translate to the NBA and whether he'd be able to move well enough defensively. 
and watching him like switch on the guards and even handle the ball on fast breaks, I, I got the impression that his weight loss since the G League season has enabled him to be a more agile and versatile player. And it's a little easier for me to envision him eventually cracking the NBA one day and maybe finding a role there as he matures and develops. I even thought a shot looked a little better, a little less um, over the back of the head. And if he is able to become a pick and pop big, obviously that enhances the potential uh, for him down the line. I thought Isaiah Joe was the best player for the Sixers by a wide margin. We didn't need to see much from Paul Reed, but he, we, he was what we expected in terms of uh, being all over the place and very productive at that level. And then I think Springer was di disappointing. I think everyone understands that he needs to improve the jump shot and the form right now has major issues. And I wonder whether a re serious revamp will be necessary. Uh, the Sixers like his defensive tools and his strength at a young age and Daryl Morey's high on his potential, but from what I saw in summer league, it's, it's difficult for me to see him like being in an NBA game in a meaningful sense anytime soon. Uh, and then traveling queen, you know, is a guy who I guess on paper might be fighting with Joe for a roster spot. And I thought he was up and down. There were some great moments where he flashed athleticism and cutting and open floor speed uh, but a ton of turnovers and uh, didn't shoot well and, and, you know, some negatives to his summer league performance for sure. So uh, those were my general takeaways, but I think Foster for me was the pleasant surprise for the Sixers. I, I knew a bit of what to expect and I thought he was an intriguing player, but he exceeded my expectations. Yeah. We, we had an episode of, Oh, I don't know, sometime, you know, well before the draft, a month or two before the draft. And we solely focused on players that weren't playing in college. And of course, he was one of the ones we talked about. And, it, you know, and the more I watched him, the more I liked him. And it's, you know, in, in, and at some point I declared on this show, I guaranteed he would be drafted. <laughs> so I was even more surprised that he didn't get drafted than Champagny um, because I really like all the things that he can do. And, you know, you first look at him and you're like, uh Oh, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of a chunky guy, but he's not, you know I mean? Combine, he only had like 6% body fat and he can move. Um, so I, I, I really hope the Sixers hold on to him. Um, because I, I like his upside. So I'll pass you, pass you over to Drew. For what it's worth, Rich, I really hope uh, my Golden State Warriors uh, were going to swoop him up near the end of the draft there. So I was a bit disappointed when we let him slide through our fingers. But, uh, you know, no, now that we've got through Summer League, the draft, free agency has been kind of, you know, a bit of a stall with all the Kevin Durant stuff and Kyrie stuff. But how do you feel that the Sixers roster is kind of shaping up for the season? Uh, do you still think Matisse Thibel is going to, you know, be a part of the team's future plans? I know here on the show, we've talked about maybe some potential dissension with the whole vaccination status in the playoffs. And then you know, who do you think is going to take Danny Green's starting spot? I mean, I know Danny Green's going to be up there in years, but it's hard to replace, you know, veteran leadership, playoff experience. And I mean, three and D is kind of the new mold in the NBA that everybody's looking for. Right. I'd be surprised if PJ Tucker isn't a starter. I think Tobias Harris is more than capable of guarding high level, small forwards. I think the series against Pascal Siakam, he was excellent. Um, and 
has just improved his game gradually. But like, if you look at where he was defensively when the Sixers first got him and where he is now, it's a big leap. And um, I do think it helps his team a lot. So I, I would expect Tucker to start. Um, I think Thibel is always fascinating, is always tricky. Um, I think it's no secret that the Sixers are not determined to hold on to him. Like Daryl Morey, I, I asked about Thibel's future at the end of, end of season press conference with um, the Sixers, and he acknowledged it's more difficult for one-way players in the postseason, and it's stating the obvious, but I do think it's notable for Morey to acknowledge that, and um, therefore a lot's on the table with Thibel. Um, I think the Sixers know they need to be better at forcing turnovers and he's the best guy they've got there, but um, it is just very often a detriment to the team's offense when he's on the floor and he's the no brainer guy that guys um, double team Joel and beat off of. So the Sixers, I know like fully believe he is a better shooter than he has shown. I even, you know, speaking with Danny Green last year, one-on-one, and he was, he was telling me like in the summer, they have to guard Thibault tight and he is knocking down threes. Um, but clearly there are confidence issues and he's just not a self-assured offensive player. And I think the reputation now is something he's got to fight against. Even if the percentage improves a few points, it's still entirely logical for teams to um, not treat him as a threat beyond the three point line. And that's a big problem. So he's a wild card. I, I, I don't feel confident in anything I might predict with Matisse Thibel. Uh, I will say, yeah, they don't view him as a long-term piece right now, but um, they also, I think, believe that there is untapped offense potential. So <laughs> I, they've mulled this over a bunch. And as of now, he's still on the roster because they haven't been able to you know, get a trade that they feel would be, you know, to their satisfaction. I think overall the team's deeper. Uh, I guess we briefly, you know, mentioned House and Tucker and D'Anthony Melton, I, I think was a strong draft night trade uh, who will help with the turnover creation, will make them a more dynamic transition team, and will fill some of those voids uh, created by, you know, Ben Simmons no longer being on this roster. Um, so I, I do think they're a better team than the one that lost to the Miami Heat. The goals were to upgrade toughness, perimeter defense, rebounding, and I think they checked all the boxes. Um, are they the number one team in the East or the team to beat? Nope, that's still the Boston Celtics. The Milwaukee Bucks still look awfully good and awfully difficult to uh, beat in a playoff series, but I do think the Sixers uh, roster has improved. So you, you mentioned P.J. starting. Um, I would assume that the plan is for him also to be Joel's prime backup. Um, given that Bassey still doesn't seem to be, I mean, he, he shows flashes and then he disappears. Um, do you think that the Sixers should be maybe looking for, you know, it seems like every year they bring in someone, Dwight Howard, you know, DeAndre Jordan, somebody. Do you think they'll do that again this year just in case? Because, you know, basically if something happens to Joel or PJ, you know, I, I guess they go to Paul, but we all know that Paul's not really a true center. Um, so do you think do you think that's, you know, some a position they're going to be looking to shore up a little bit? 
Yeah, I think if the Sixers are to make like a marginal move before the season, that that's probably the most likely position. You could you could put you know a, another wing in there. You could put another true point guard, but. Yes, I think they understand that it would be beneficial to have more stability and to have more experience at backup center. I, I would put Paul Reed higher in that pecking order is, is my personal sense. I do think Doc Rivers was really skeptical at first that he could maintain his discipline and not commit boneheaded fouls. And I, I was even recently going through – um, and, you know, an old um, game from early in the season and you see Rivers like screaming out in dismay when he screws up an after timeout play. And like that was not an irregular occurrence, just these moments where it's like, man, can I trust this guy in the playoffs? Um, and then ultimately he largely did. And I think Paul Reed um, had a lot of good performances in the postseason for the Sixers. Um, so I think the fact that he's proven he can do it uh, and has become a little more in control in terms of, you know, he grabs an offensive rebound and instead of trying for a wild finish over someone four inches taller, he takes the ball out or, um, you know, defensively, he's gambling a little bit less. You know, I do think there's been a little progress um, that leads me to believe Rivers um, sees him as a more dependable option. but. Um, to the broad question, yeah, the Sixers right now have a 37-year-old, a 23-year-old, and a 21-year-old at backup center. Um, I think just like in the Philly area, it's probably overlooked how excellent P.J. Tucker has historically been as a center. But that said, uh, there are matchups where he won't profile especially well. He is six foot five, and the Sixers, you know, face a seven footer, um, you know, PJ Tucker might not be able to handle that though. He will be game to the challenge. Yeah. I think back to the, uh, Steven Adams, um, matchup in the bubble and yeah, Tucker's doing his best, but there's only so much you can do when a guy is seven inches taller than you. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's not a position of weakness for the Sixers right now, in my mind, the way it has been in past years where they had to use, Greg Monroe uh, in a game seven, but um, it is a position that they most definitely could improve in. Um, and I think a lot of it probably will ride on uh, Paul Reed. I think he will get opportunities there uh, to show that he understands what he needs to do uh, within the backup center role. And um, I think the Sixers, yeah, I think they'll give him those shots. So, no, we already talked about the Celtics and Bucks kind of vying for that one spot in the East for the coming season. Uh, but personally, you know, after the moves the Sixers have made, I mean, I think that second, third, maybe even fourth seed are going to be between, you know, the Heat still look really strong. The Sixers got better. Uh, you know, Toronto, if Scotty Barnes takes another step, could be really interesting. I think if the Bulls stay healthy, they've got a lot of talent, at least in that starting five. You know, realistically, how far do you think the Sixers, you know, are going to be able to go next season? Do you think they have a shot to contend? Uh, there's a lot of talent in the East. It's a, it's going to be a competitive conference. I think they have a shot to contend, yeah. Um, the, the big hurdle here is the second round of the playoffs. Um, you know, 2001 was the last time the Sixers made it past, and 
it was Allen Iverson and a bunch, bunch of unselfish defensively oriented guys who got them there. I think, no, this, this team won't be a you know, clone of that one, but perhaps there are some similarities where ultimately they revolve around the one big charismatic star. And um, there are a lot of, you know, role players who chip in, but um, yeah, I think the Sixers should be in that mix. Um, to me, it looks right now like Boston and Milwaukee are still the top tier and the Sixers are slightly below that. Uh, I think the moves this offseason were made with the playoffs in mind, um, being a tougher team that doesn't wilt when it faces adversity. Uh, I think from my perspective, some of that was psychological and trying to integrate new pieces and not having a lot of time to figure out what works and believe that it will be there for you in clutch moments. Um, but I also think the Sixers just had clear on paper weaknesses where there were too many one-way players that needed to get postseason minutes they didn't force enough turnovers. It felt disastrous when they themselves turned the ball over. And I just think it's an impressive job they've done to um, you know, just address those, those areas. So um, I think they're in the mix. It's always unpredictable. It always hinges on injuries. Joel Embiid's health and not you know breaking his face again would be right. cool. Um, but I think they've got a good chance they've improved their odds and that's how Daryl Morey sees things he's candid about like no team in the NBA has a 50% chance to win the championship when it enters the season but it's about materially um, improving your chances and the Sixers have done that Um, but it won't be easy to get beyond the second round it just never is really really quick before I pass you back to Rich this is something that came to my mind Obviously, Harden's playoff struggles have been pretty well documented. I mean, like I said, my Warriors and him butt heads quite a bit in the playoffs. Do you think now that he's going to be clearly the second best player on this team, like James Harden is the alpha, he's going to be the heart and soul, kind of the leader. Do you think Harden will be able to thrive in a role where maybe the pressure is not so much focused on him and he can focus on maybe just being the best James Harden that he can be instead of trying to drop 30-point triple doubles and, and carry a team through the playoffs? That was the hope. Last year, I think right. I think it was clear to everyone that Joel Embiid was the Sixers' best player. And I think to spin this more positively, the Sixers were all amazed at how great a passer James Harden is. Absolutely. He, countless teammates were like, wow, I didn't, I didn't realize this guy was like one of the best passers in the sport. And you saw immediately with the Embiid-Harden pick and roll, like mm-hmm. teams didn't know how to guard that. And then eventually, I think switching became the best option for most opponents. And it sounds counterintuitive to have a six foot three guy guarding Joel Embiid, to have Gabe Vincent on Joel Embiid, you know, at the nail. But um, it was a way to at least neutralize some of Harden's passing and to be a little more settled defensively and to just load up on the Sixers and prevent their two best players from uh, beating you. So I, I think. Um, nevertheless, like James Harden and Joel Embiid, that's an awesome offensive duo. And I think if Tyrese Maxey continues to grow, uh, gets better at drawing fouls and uh, figuring out when and how to attack and 
develops his mid-range game, which is something Sam Cassell is working on with him, uh, then that alleviates the pressure on James Harden even a tiny bit more in theory. So I think Mm -hmm. he's in a nice spot role-wise here. Um, And the one difficult thing for him is adjusting to more catch-and-shoot three opportunities. That was incredibly unnatural, and he tried his best to get up to speed uh, with doing that again, like just shooting hundreds of catch-and-shoot threes after these practices and trying to reprogram his brain. Uh, But the Sixers do want him taking those when they're open because he's a good shooter and he's getting a lot of wide-open looks uh, when Joel Embiid is double-teamed. So we'll see how he handles that uh, this season. Uh, But I think by and large, he's in a good spot. Uh, to not, as you say, not have to, you know, score 40 points a night, but uh, help the Sixers win games uh, in a variety of ways. Oh, we got one last question for you. And uh, I, I suppose, I assume during this basketball dead period, you got some uh, free time coming, coming up. Are, are you going on vacation? Any interesting uh, plans for, for the rest of the summer? Yeah, I, st- I still got to schedule uh, the vacation, but I'll have, have one at some point. Um, tentatively next year, I'd like to visit my friend um, who will be going to California for grad school. So that is next year. This year will probably be less exotic, probably a, a staycation of uh, some kind. But uh, nevertheless, we'll try to recharge uh, before the next season. All right. Well, if you head up toward the Poconos or the uh, state parks in New Jersey, that's that's where I am. I'm in the northwest corner of the state, so you'll have to uh, look me up and we'll, we'll get together for a beer. Um, so thank you very much, uh, Noah, for joining us. That's uh, Noah Levick with uh, NBC Sports Philadelphia. Um, that's where you can find Noah. And I, I really appreciate the time today. And um, yeah. I hope you come back uh, at some point, uh, maybe before the playoffs or all-star break somewhere again, and we could talk to the Sixers all over again. Sounds great. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm definitely definitely down, guys. Uh, I'll have a, have a Michael Foster Jr. update for you. I'm, there I'm, you go. There you go. All right, we'll let you go. I could, I could talk about the Sixers if you can't tell for forever. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again for joining us. Appreciate we it. We appreciate it, Noah. Yeah, thank you, guys. All right. Uh, our guest this week is Law Murray, who covers the LA Clippers for The Athletic. Uh, Law, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. Uh, dealing with a little hand injury. Uh, not a little. It, it sucks. But we're working on it month to month. So uh, I'm appreciative of where I'm at. Broken bones? A little fracture in the middle finger. So uh, <laughs> I can't make a yeah, I can't make a fist. Um, it's it's kind of wrecked my summer a little bit because I've wanted to play as much as possible. Uh, that was the plan. And um, I can. Yeah, I can't can't really play as much as I want right now. But, um, you know, I'm fortunate that it's the summertime and that I can focus on getting uh, back to 100 percent. Right. I didn't mean to laugh at your injury, but I, I just had uh, weird images come into my head when you said it was your middle finger. So. <laughs> oh, I've been telling people part of my rehab has been flipping a bird, you know. <laughs> All righty. So the last time we talked, uh, you were in Minnesota and the Clippers were in Minnesota and you're getting ready to play their first play in game of uh, last season's playoffs, even though they don't call it a playoff game. But anyway, this this uh, season squad should be very different. Well, not maybe very different. I mean, there's a lot of continuity, but 
the one big thing that I'd like to start off talking about was the addition of uh, former all-star John Wall. How do you see John fitting in and how much of an impact do you think he'll have? I think the variance on John Wall is all over the place because you, when you think of John Wall, you think of number one pick, you know, uh, you're, you're thinking of five-time all-star, you're thinking of all the things that he's gone through and, and like my man hasn't played two of the previous three seasons. And the one year he did play, it was a 40 game year with a Rockets team that wasn't anywhere close to the team that he thought he was joining when he was traded there. So, I mean, just off of what you've seen from John Wall, it's like, wow, like that guy's going to be with the Clippers. It's, it's hard to kind of contextualize even that. And then you have to translate that to what the fit looks like. The Clippers have established a way of playing both with their stars under Ty Lue. And then last year they played plenty without their stars. So, I mean, John is a kind of player who, I mean, the glass half full is he's a clear upgrade at point guard, a playmaker, a driver, a guy who wants to defend and a guy who has taken last year circumstances to get himself healthy and ready to play a kind of basketball that represents this phase of his career, not the phase that, you know, we saw when he was the guy creating 40% of his team's offenses. That's the glass half full, the glass half empty. And that's not to say that either or is going to be the case. Like I'm, I am glad for John Wall that he gets an opportunity to work and to get to a point where he can fit in with the Clippers. He's, we got to see what, what my man play again. It's been more than a year since he played an NBA game. And then he played on a really bad Rockets team, but now going to the Clippers, it's not as simple as go from the alpha guy to what John is saying. I don't have to be Batman anymore. Well, it's easy to say it, but now we got to see what that looks like. Cause we have not seen that from John wall at any point on a national stage before, you know, can John Wall screen? Can John Wall cut? How's that shooting going to look? You know, even as a catch and shoot guy, he's always been a better catch and shoot guy, but how is it going to look? Will he space the floor in a way where guys are creating shots for him when he spent his whole basketball adult life creating shots and getting other guys paid? You know, I'm, I'm excited for John Wall. And that doesn't mean I think he's a lot to start. I'm all my depth charts are conservative right now at this stage of the all season, because that's just how I process the game. I say, who's your constant and then who are your variables? The constant is Reggie because you already know how he fits both with the stars and, and the uh, incredible overuse that we saw from him last year. That was necessary. We, we know that's the constant. That's the baseline, the foundation, John, the theoretical talent is that he's so good that he will exceed what Reggie can do. But you also have to understand that John has to get to the point where he is able to contribute to this team. Will we see that in a preseason? That is for me, the thing that I'm looking at besides, you know, obviously what Kawhi looks like. Right. So I would think it's safe to say this is the best team John Wall has ever played on by far. Oh yeah. And he should say that he should say that too. He, I think he would he would agree. Right. Okay. I'm going to pass it over to Hugh. Yeah, Law. So I spent some time at Summer League this year, and I suspect you did as well. So which players yeah. on the Clippers Summer League squad impressed you uh, in Vegas? And do you think anyone from that group may surprise and make the roster this season? 
Well, uh, the, the, I'll tell you the short answer to the, to the, the second question is no, I don't think there will be any surprises. Mm-hmm. I think the guys who are on the team are on the team. Like Musa Diabate has his two-way contract, Brandon Boston and Jason Preston, they have their contracts. The guys who are kind of up for the only guy, the only other guy still on the team that is on the roster that has to play themselves onto the roster in the preseason is Xavier Moon. And I think Xavier has a okay chance to make the team as a two-way contract guy, a much lesser chance as a standard contract guy. Um, And Jay Scrub was the other one, but Jay has already been waived. Um, And I don't think any other, anybody else uh, is even going to get a look from the Clippers as far as a training camp deal. Um, I mean, they've got three guys who they've committed to exhibit 10 contracts and Michael DeVoe, Lucas Williamson, Justin Bean, all those guys are three and D players who, you know, they played their senior year or more in, in uh, NCAA last year, division one. But I mean, I don't think guys really stood out that much with that summer league team. It's not a knock, um, but the guy, I think we got kind of what we expected and no one was over the top. I think Jay unfortunately looked too much like Brandon Boston. Like those guys were the two scoring leaders they scored the same way. They shot about the same, for better or for worse. Um, Jay actually scored more than Brandon did. But Brandon is, you know, uh, he, he's a little bit further in his development, which says a lot considering he was a draft pick a year later than, than Jay was. And that's why Jay is looking to go to another uh, for his next opportunity. The one guy that uh, I really want to talk about is uh, Musa Diabate. We, uh, on our site, had him ranked, I believe, in the low to mid-40s, which was way above um, any other site. I mean, most sites didn't even have him in draftable range, so I'm patting myself on the back for that one. Um, yeah. You know, what I, what, I loved, <laughs> what I loved about him was his body, uh, his energy, um, and uh, his athleticism. So what do you think about Musa? Um, You know, and what do you expect from him? Not this year, but, you know, a few years down the road. Well, it's going to have to be next year for, for Musa. Like, I think you got to take things a year at a time. I think contracts dictate that Um, he's on a one year uh, two way contract, which means that he's going to spend a ton of time next year in the G League and he's going to, uh, you know, get an opportunity to make the team and maybe even have a rotation spot in 2023, 24, depending on how that year of development goes. Um, I got to talk to Phil Martelli, uh, who is Juwan Howard's assistant over in Michigan. I got to talk to Musa's uh, coach in IMG Academy and I got to talk to Musa himself, like get a sense of who he is, how he got to be the person and player that he is and what he look, what he sees for himself. And I love his perspective on everything. He knows he's got a long way to go. He knows it's going to be a long game. He loves basketball. He loves the NBA. Um, there's a difference between the two. Like basketball is the sport. We play, you watch, you engage in it. But then the NBA is the league, the business, the players, the, what we're seeing on TV, how we're covering it. And he loves both of it. And he's someone that I know is going to work to get to where he wants to be. And he wants to have a 10 year career in the league or more. So 
Uh, we're a long way from that. Uh, I think Musa's physically is what attracted the Clippers to him and uh, or attracted him to the Clippers, I should say. And the theoretical product is there, a guy who can switch, a guy who can possibly protect the rim. He's going to be in a he's going to be playing a position that is different than what he was asked to do at Michigan, Michigan. He played next to uh, Hunter Dickinson, who was an all American center for crying out loud. So that means Musa was playing the power forward for the most part. And maybe he was a little bit out of position at Michigan. He's not a guy who the Clippers want spacing the floor. He's not a guy who the Clippers are going to want, you know, just kind of playing next to another traditional big, if you will. Uh, they look at Musa as a as a center. That means a guy who he's going to learn how to, he's going to have to learn how to set screens, roll, uh, cut, dive, make plays in transition as a trailer. Uh, defensively, I actually think is where he has the most room to grow because with all that energy that he plays with, he needs to be more effective, not get in foul trouble as much actually be good defending the pick and roll um, and be good as a rim protector, as someone who can block shots. He's not there yet. Uh, he didn't show that in Michigan, but now he's going to have that as his full-time job to literally just play basketball, get better, and to pick up on things on both ends of the floor. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the Clippers develop a young big man because they haven't had a whole lot of success in that department in recent seasons. Right. Um, one quick follow-up is, uh, I know he's an older freshman. Uh, was that because of I, uh, going to IGM or, uh, or IMG, excuse me, or was that due to injury or? Definitely not due to injury. My man's been in a different school five years in a row, uh, man. Like one in, one and done in Michigan or, or actually he was at IMG, I want to say two years, but like he was in a different school sophomore year, different school freshman year. Uh, a different. He was at Monteverde for his what would have been his eighth grade year. When you go from one country to the next in the in American school system, you know that you know they'll they'll probably have you repeat a grade. You know, um, like this this Musa Diabate is well traveled already at twenty years old. Okay. So and and now he's in another new situation again. Right. Like it's not just that he's going to be a Clipper; he's going to be with the Ontario Clippers more than the LA Clippers. <laughs> like a two-way player has to do that dance where it's like you're playing in the G, but they might call you up to practice and then send you back to the G, or vice versa. You know, they'll have you with the big team, you know, and then they'll send you to the G to play a game, and then they'll bring you back. He's going to have to get adjust to that too, but right. I think that he's he's used to it. Okay, go ahead. Jim. Rich, Rich, I like that question. It shows that uh, the Clippers war room and you have a similar approach to the draft. Maybe <laughs> they should consult with you moving forward. <laughs> but, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's really, it's really, I saw that his percentage of body fat and I was so damn jealous. I had to move him up on our draft board. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sw switching gears a little bit here. It appears that Luke Kennard, the trade talk around him has quieted a bit lately. So with, with Drake, we spoke about Jay Scrub being cut, Brandon Boston looking like he could be a, a year away. Do you think Kennard is safe moving forward, or do you think there's still an opportunity where he could be dealt, and could that be for potentially center depth? I don't think a trade is imminent before the season starts. I, I, I can say that. Uh, I don't think that – really, Luke is a, is a valuable player for the Clippers. Uh, I think they identified him as valuable. That's why they signed him to the extension before he even played a game for them. And it took him some time to 
to get comfortable. Uh, I think his first year with the Clippers was uneven. I think we can objectively say that. But last year, you really saw him take a step. Uh, he got more comfortable. He understood that he's not on the floor to pass the damn ball. You know, like he's one of the best shooters in the NBA. And it's not just that he's a guy who can make shots, make threes. It's how he gets those shots, how he sets up his offense. You know, he has a little bit of on-ball juice. He, I don't think he's a great playmaker by any uh, stretch, but he's a guy who you can put in a pick and roll. He's also a guy who screens incredibly well. We don't think about this a lot, but if you look at NBA games, who's the most dangerous guy who sets the screen? Guys who can shoot, you know? Yeah. And JJ Reddick you, used to always run around setting screens. Right. And JJ Reddick, former Clipper. So if you look at how Luke went about last year, I think besides the bigs, Zubots and Hartenstein, I think the guy who set the most ball screens was, you know, and scored out of them was Luke Kennard. Like he's, he, he was, he was up there if he's not, if he wasn't like past everybody else. And it's because it's not like he's setting a screen trying to lay somebody out like Rick Mahorn in the late eighties. Like it's just, it's just, you know, give the defense something to think about. And next year they're going to, the Clippers are going to be able to optimize that because instead of setting screens for, you know, T-man, or Reggie Jackson, it's literally going to be Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. That's a different kind of small, small pick and roll. That's a guy that you're not going to replace that. Just it, There's not a lot of those guys walking around in the NBA. Even in the best league and in, in best basketball league in the world, there's not a lot of guys who do that. So the Clippers have to be careful. You know, yeah, they have a surplus of wings, surplus of big guards, but that doesn't mean you make a move just because you have to make a move. And yeah, Luke is definitely gettable um, in, in terms of the kind of deal he's on and because the Clippers have this depth. But the Clippers, they have to make a deal that would make them better, not just necessarily make a deal just to make a deal. That makes sense. Um, so obviously, you know, the Clippers, you know, I would say the key to their success is is basically the, the healthy return of Kawhi. Um, what's his status right now? I think Kawhi's doing well for where we're at in the offseason. He doesn't need to play basketball games in the NBA right now. He's working on him. And that means the conditioning, the recovery from the knee. I think the knee is in a good place uh, from all that I've been able to gather from sources. And that's really all I can go off of because I haven't gotten to see Kawhi in person since April. Um, I think even in April, he looked pretty good when we got a chance to see him at the practice facility. Not that he wanted us to see him. <laughs> so there's that too. Kawhi is an intensely private basketball player, even by NBA standards. So um, when we see him next, it, he will, it'll most likely be in September. Uh, I think the next step for him will be, is he ready to play in preseason games? Um, and when he missed most of his last year in San Antonio, he gets traded to Toronto. He played in preseason games for the Raptors and then jumped right back into playing, um, you know, a full, a full schedule, a full workload of minutes, uh, not a full schedule, obviously, because, you know, we talked a lot about load management in that year in Toronto, right? Uh, I think we're going to get more of that. Um, and it sucks because the narrative is going to get messy, but that's what is needed. Uh, this Clippers team ain't out here to win 70 games. They're trying to win 16 games once the playoff field is set. 
And to do that, you got to manage guys like Kawhi, like PG throughout the season. I think everything you could ask for in in, in July, August for Kawhi Leonard, uh, he I think he's at a good place. I think everyone's encouraged. There's been no setbacks. Um, but we'll see in late September what things are really looking like when training camp starts. Right. When you talk about load management, you know, when I look at the Clippers, you know, who, you know who they have, especially, you know, where behind Paul and the, the different and, and Kawhi, the different guys that they can play like Luke, um, you know, they have a lot of depth there. So um, I think they'll be able to successfully do load management and still continue to win games. Would you agree? Yeah. And that's what building off of last season means. You know, they, that team had to play so many games without guys who, in Tyron Lou's words, could cook. You know, a lot of guys who can eat but can't cook, you know. Now they got guys who can cook. But on top of that, they have such a breadth of complementary talent. And so what you do is you take what you've developed and then you add in the stars. Every team is looking for a star. You know, the Clippers have two. And you're trying to just build a team complimentary to get through the regular season because the regular season is different than the playoffs. Everyone's going to jump to conclusions with the playoffs. You got to build something in the regular season. You have to build off of what you've already established in previous years. And the Clippers are in a great place to do that despite missing the playoffs last year. So it's not going to be smooth. If they start 15 and five, that's a great sign because while there's a lot of continuity with the Clippers, so many of these dudes didn't play last year. Kawhi didn't play at all last year. John Wall didn't play for any NBA team last year. Now he's on a new NBA team. Paul missed more than half the season. Norman Powell played half the season in Portland and then missed every game except five, not including the play in uh, for the Clippers. So like that's half of your rotation, half your rotation, Missed more than half of the year, at least last season. And now you're going to expect them to jump right in. The talent's going to be there. The chemistry is certainly there. The coaching is certainly there. Uh, Everyone's kind of on the same page. But basketball, like, if they click, then that's a great sign. I'm expecting them to have a little bit of growing pains and everything. And that's, that's, that's the expectation. But they're set up to do well in the long game. And then... I just want to add on the on Kawhi's status. I mean, it's been well documented that he enjoys living down here in San Diego. That's where I am currently. And yeah, a couple that's of where my he old, is <laughs> currently. A couple, couple of my old teammates just saw him this week leave. Undisclosed location. Can confirm that Kawhi is putting in the work. I, I saw him there two, about two years ago now in an offseason. So I think that might be maybe his go-to gym for some offseason work. But it, it was awesome that they saw him rolling out. Nice, uh, nice. Now you've told the world where he hides. <laughs> yeah, and that's we had outside now. We can cut All that, right. don't worry. We'll we'll blur it. Uh, moving on, though, I want to talk about the goals for next season. With all things considered, how far do you expect Clippers to go this upcoming season? I think the goal for the Clippers should be conference finals. Um, I I think everyone's jumping to conclusions that they're of you know they can. Can they win a championship? Yes. And that's what a conference finals appearance really says for me. You know, if you're part of the top four, the final four left in the NBA, um, the last two teams standing in your own conference, then yeah, you're a contender. And, but I think the Clippers have to build to that. Like the team that they hope to be in May is not the team that they're, they are right now. 
And that goes back to, look, the team, not only did they miss the playoffs, they had double-digit fourth-quarter leads in both play-in games, and they obviously weren't able to close the deal. So it, it is hard to get it all back in one year, but I think that this is the kind of team that is capable of making a major step towards it. And obviously, once you get to the conference finals, it's not like you say, all right, that's it. We've done what we need to do. You know, like you're going to if you get to the conference finals, you're thinking we're halfway there already or we have an opportunity. That's what the team was like in 2021. And that was with Kawhi Leonard having a knee injury that we didn't even know at the time was a confirmed partially torn ACL, you know, heading into a contract year. So a contract offseason. This team's goal, in my mind, should be to match what that team in 2021 did. And the difference, ideally, is that they can put their best team on the floor in 2023, whereas obviously in 2021, when they played game one in Phoenix on a Sunday afternoon, they were they, they were playing knowing that they didn't have their best player um, and they didn't have their best offseason acquisition in Serge Ibaka that year either. That was a team that was significantly compromised depth-wise. The team that's coming in the camp this year should have health and depth in a way that they did not have the previous two years under Tyron Lue. All right, well, uh, last question, uh, and then we'll let you go. Um, I know you have some off time coming up. you have any interesting vacation plans? Heck no. My, my, my vacation is literally just get healthy. I, I sound like a – I, I sound like a, I'm getting ready for training camp as a player, not a media member, but that's really the case. I'm really trying to get healthy. I'm trying these next two months, they can take their time. I am, I'm literally not counting down the days to cover, um, you know, training camp and, and media day and all that. Like I really need to, I, I need some time, you know, um, that is, that is my priority. Uh, wherever I wind up going, like, uh, any day I can go D and D that's, that's what I'm about. So, um, I don't have any big plans. My plans are to take these 24 hours as they come. All right. Sounds good. And for those who don't know, we were talking before the show, but, uh, law broke his middle finger on your, uh, on your regular, on your strong hand or your off hand. Hey, I mean, I'm, I can use both hands, but <laughs> it is my shooting hand, which, which okay. sucks. All right. can, you, can you still type effectively low? I can do everything. I can shoot right now. Not well, but I can, <laughs> I can, I can shoot right now, man. So, you know, you will try and come up to LA and get a run for me, man. We, we can put it together. I just got to put a finger <laughs> sleeve on. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, uh, thanks again, law. We uh, always enjoy your company. Uh, you always give us uh, great information and uh, hopefully we'll check back. Uh, you'll come back and visit us uh, at some point during the season um, and let us know how the Clippers are doing. Yeah. I appreciate the time. Thank All you. Right. Thanks so much. All right. So we got to move on and we're going to wrap up this episode. Uh, as we talked about, this is a basketball doldrums. Uh, and so we have a uh, lull in our mailbag uh, this week. Uh, only one excellent listener question, though. I will say someone on Twitter said that they thought that I looked like Daryl or not Twitter on YouTube on our James Harden video said that they, they thought that I was Daryl Morey. Um, <laughs> I think they were teasing me. 
Um, you've been, anyway. you've been talking to PJ Tucker, haven't you, Rich? That's <laughs> what happened here. Hey, I tried to get TJ Tucker. Uh, I had him making 20 million a year, so he should be uh, thanking me. Anyway, um, all right. So the one question we have this week is from Amy, who asked an excellent question uh, and not an easy one to answer, perhaps. Uh, what do you guys think about the Celtics trading for Kevin Durant? Who wants to start, Connor? Yeah, at first I was like, like my first thought was like, oh, the Celtics are just like they're winning the championship if they do this. Um, and also I think the fact that this trade didn't happen because of Marcus Smart is the wildest thing. Like Marcus Smart is what did it. Like you wanted Marcus Smart. But that's regardless. Um, after thinking about it, um, if I was a Celtics, I don't think I would do this at all. Because like to me, Tatum and Brown's championship window is genuinely the next decade plus some. Um, and obviously we don't know if Kevin Durant's going to be like a LeBron type where at 37, he's putting up career numbers or anything, but I'm a big fan of timelines. I think the Celtics timeline right now is on a good pace. Like I think they're, they're going to be, they're on track to be a championship contending team for, for all of 10 something years. Um, and I think trading for Kevin Durant after maybe three, that could look like a really bad trade. And now you're, you're trying to get another star. And I don't know. I just, I don't, even for, for Kevin Durant too, I'm a big, I'm a KD fan. Um, and I think going to Brooklyn was all about like creating his legacy outside of Golden State. So it's going to be an awful look if he gets traded to the team that was a couple games away from winning the title. Yeah. So I'm just not a big fan of this all around. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, he's building a new kind of legacy. Uh, Cam? So to me, I think it comes down to what you're giving. Like if, if, you're, if you're in a situation where you're giving up Brown plus one of your main rotation guys, you, you can't do it. You're just giving up too much depth. And that's already kind of been an issue for this team. But... I got to say, if, if you can make it to where it's it's brown and, like, you know, one role player and a little bit of draft assets, I, I kind of think I would do it. And here's my reasoning. Um, timelines look great, but they can get changed in an instant. And there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to bring back Jalen Brown when he enters free agency, and that's coming up. Hmm. The other reason is... Like, granted, Jalen Brown, I like his game a lot, but is he ever going to be as good as a healthy Kevin Durant, even at age 36? I don't think he is. Mm, I mean, and that's what you're, you're, you're taking that gamble. But if it works out, you've got Jason Tatum, a young buck of the highest order. You've got one of the best scorers of all time in Kevin Durant on your team. And you've still got some depth with Brogdon. You've still got some promising young guys like Time Lord. Like, I don't know. I think you're looking at the Lakers maybe as an example with adding LeBron. Like, is it worth it to get that one championship? Maybe. But, I mean, yeah, I think realistically you probably got a three-year timeline if they've made that trade. Um it's so hard. It really does come down to, to the value you're giving up to me. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't know that. Uh, Drew. Yeah. So if I'm the Celtics. I'd probably do this 
uh, to be completely honest, because and it all ties to me to someone who's not on either team, but it's Giannis. I think Giannis is an all timer. I think his resume is already impeccable. And if they keep Middleton, Giannis, and then Drew Holiday's in the mix, and they've got you know some guys, maybe Bo Champ turns into something. I don't think the Celtics. I don't think the Celtics beat them if Middleton's healthy this year. So I think everyone's looking at their championship run. To me, I don't want to say fluky, but they went to two game sevens in a row and they won one without Chris Middleton, their second best player out there. So Giannis kind of messes this up. And I think Tatum and KD is a better comment. I don't think Jalen Brown would be Kevin Durant. I think Kevin Durant is a top 15 player if he retires tomorrow. And who knows where his career goes in the next you know, that, that years. Wasn't, that wasn't what Cam said. He said if if he's healthy this year. So, no, yeah. And, 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 and my point would be is, you know, who's more likely to get hurt, Durant or Brown? And so that's the way you have to look at it. You also have but to, consider, I, I agree with you Cam. also have to consider is we're just not plugging Durant and, and shipping out Brown. They're going to have to ship out more than that. So they ship. Okay. So the trade I've been hearing is Brown picks smart and maybe like one rotation player. And I, I get you're giving up depth, but I just think the Celtics final run is being viewed with some rose tinted glasses. Kevin Durant is Kevin Durant. He is better than Brown ever will be. I'm willing to say that. Marcus Smart to me, great. He's defensive player of the year. I don't really know. He's limited. He makes boneheaded basketball plays. And if you want Grant Williams, take Grant Williams. He's a role player. Durant is an all timer. He retired. He announced on Twitter, "I'm done well, basketball." I'll tell you, I'll I'll tell you what, time. right now, I'll make this bet right now. Starting today. Starting today, you can pick the stat. I don't know, win shares or whatever. Jalen Brown is going to have, from this point on, Jalen Brown will have more win shares for his career than Kevin Durant will from this point on. I mean, that's guaranteed. That's a 100% yeah, that, win. Yeah, like, that's that, that's, win for me. That, 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 that's fine, but you're trying to win, and you can stick with your little core that you have now. But I do not think the Celtics are beating the Bucks or the Bucks. A few weeks Durant ago, we called him. that we called that little core the favorite to win the NBA title. I don't think they're the favorite next year. I have the Bucks. Bucks are coming out of these. When we year, were discussing the offseason moves, we said we thought the Brogdon deal was like the best deal, and several of us said now we thought they were yeah, clearly I, I the think, NBA favorites. Um, so, but I now was, if Kevin Durant is on the if Kevin Durant is on the table, though, that I'm like Kevin Durant, Jason Tatum, Brogdon, Time Lord. If Horford's still there with Derek White, that team is terrifying. And I and I like Zane Brown, but you have the those two guys did lead by a wide margin the playoff and the turn uh, playoffs and turnovers. Tatum fell apart in the finals. We've seen Kevin Durant rise to the occasion in the finals. Look, Kevin Durant's a pain in the ass. He's a I headache. I didn't see I didn't see Durant rise to the occasion very well against the Celtics this year. Yeah, I think that team. That, I think that team was completely mentally just wiped out. Ben, they have Ben Simmons, who's out of it. Kyrie was the the leader. He's a pain. But if you put him into a strong organization, we plug Durant into the Warriors, and I get. Oh, Steph you mean Curry. so we have to use a LeBron formula for Durant that we have to set everything up so that they're guaranteed. He's, to he's win? followed LeBron's career pretty right, right. Pretty so, so he's one of these guys that has to have everything set yeah. so he can win a ring. It's why he's not. It's why he's wow. not the goat. You know, if, if you do, you could probably do that with any of the five of us too. Yeah, I just think that I'd probably do it. I think Marcus Smart is overvalued. I like Jalen Brown. And yes, Jalen Brown is going to be longer for a longer period of time from here on out more effective because he's younger. But I'm like, does anyone here think that Jalen Brown is going to reach what Pete Kevin Durant is? I don't think so. And I did just watch Kevin Durant when he was out there, barring the Celtics series where it was a collapse on the team. The dude is still Kevin Durant. 
I just think that you have Cam. I do agree with the point. Timelines are fickle. What happens if Jalen Brown gets hurt next year? What, what if Jalen Brown's Kevin out there? Durant's almost because... guaranteed to get hurt next year. I just think that Kevin Durant, Tatum with Time Lord, but Brogdon, Al Horford, Derek White. I think that team is terrifying. You have two of the best scorers at, in the league, and you have a young guy still in Tatum that can carry the torches. Durant ages out. You, you got to go for it now. You're not doing what the Lakers did. The Lakers gave up everything I, for AD. I think Boston's already set up to go for it now. And I, yeah, I got to I got to play the middle. My my thinking is if you can get the Nets to agree to Brown and picks. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Well yeah. Then th- and, that's that's a yeah, different story. I think, I think realistically, that should be enough for Brooklyn because Jalen Brown's a really right, good. But we player. saw the Rudy I mean, Gobert thing, so. But yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 I think I think you're you're right, but I don't think it's happening because of Rudy Gobert. All right, we got to cut it right there. Uh, yeah. Um. All right, folks. Uh. Please, that was a great question, Amy. And oh, oh, by the way, um, my final thought on this, I think the Celtics are set up to compete right now. They're one of maybe three teams. Absolutely. Three teams that are favored to win it. If I was them, I shut down this talk right now. I don't piss off any of the players. They made beautiful moves in the offseason. Just shut up about Durant. Don't piss off Brown, and let's go get that title if I'm the Celtics. Uh, all right, so, folks, please keep on uh, sending us our questions to admin at hoopsprospects.com. I want to thank our two guests today, Law Murray and Noah Levick. Uh, and plus, I want to thank all of our listeners. We will be back in two weeks to discuss more hoops and argue and all that good stuff. See you soon, folks. 